Hello, everybody, and welcome to Staying Fit ODAT. My name is Migs, and I'm your host. ODAT is an acronym for one day at a time that I picked up in early sobriety and something that's stuck with me every day since. All right, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thomas, how are we doing? Doing well, man. Just banged out a uh, five-mile run down on the Palmer bike path. Got some hill work in this afternoon and uh, trying to be stronger than my excuses today. Nice. I love it. I love it. This episode is just right out the gate. This, this is the kind of energy this guy brings. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about how I got the privilege to meet this, uh, this man uh, fairly recently. But before we do that, why don't you tell us uh, just who you are, where you're from, and what you do for a living? Sure, not a problem at all. Uh, my name is Thomas Carlick, and I am from South Allentown originally. Um, was born in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, across the state. We moved here when I was five. Um, and uh, involved in fitness. I own a gym. I, I don't like to call myself a gym owner because it's more like uh, I always tell my clients that I'm, I'm like Google Maps. I can tell you what to do and how to get there, but you still have to do the work. So um, I guess a, a, a fitness guider, if you will. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, so before we hop into Thomas's story, uh, I'm going to give our listeners a little bit of a, a backstory on how I had the chance to meet this young man. Um, so on May 1st, I had the privilege of volunteering and helping out with the uh, Lehigh Valley Walk for Recovery. And during that, um, if anybody follows the Instagram page or the Facebook page, I did a bunch of like little short interviews um, just for different people out there doing some some awesome shit for the community and doing really, really cool stuff out there. And in that time, I had a chance to meet somebody, uh, meet a couple people from the Phoenix Fit team, and they were just talking about everything going on and whatnot. And then someone kind of let the cat out the bag that the owner, Thomas, was also in recovery himself. And so immediately I wanted to get a chance to meet him. We did kind of like a little short uh, one or two minute video in which he got to talk about the gym and, you know, how you can get like a 10 day pass and all that, which we're going to bring up at the end and whatnot. But in there, I kind of threw him on the spot and said, hey, would you also like to be on the podcast and share your story? And we can go in detail for an hour or two and just talk about everything that's going on. And um, I put him on the spot like I like to do and. He, he agreed, and here we are now at the almost the end of the month, a few weeks later, and we're getting ready to rock and roll. So we're going to just pretty much just jump into Thomas's story from there because he is obviously a member of the recovery community, um, a gym owner, so there's going to be a lot to talk about here today. But before we get into all that cool fitness stuff, why don't you go ahead and tell us about your childhood growing up. I know you said your first experience with a drink or a drug was around 12 or 13 years old, so... Why don't you recap your life growing up before that? Sure thing. And um, I think that's probably the most vanilla part of my story. Uh, I wish I had this, uh, or maybe I don't wish, uh, I had good reasons to be a, a fall down, pants, piss, and alcoholic drug addict. I don't. Um, I grew up in South Allentown in a, in, in a relatively normal family, uh, Irish-Slovak upbringing um, from a... a you know, pretty normal Catholic family. I will say that my family drank, drank heavily um, in, uh, in times of celebration. Um, but uh, in, in later on, some of them got involved in recovery. Uh, but for the most part, pretty normal upbringing. I went to, to Hiram Dodd Elementary School, walked to school, you know, kindergarten through fifth grade, 
mom up, uh, you know, walked with us up until we were old enough to be able to do it on our own. Um, and uh, dad was a, a machinist and, and then eventually a plant manager out in a factory in uh, Mukunji, Mancourt. Um, and uh, I didn't want for much, you know what I mean? My family, we had a, a three, three, one townhouse. I've got two brothers, an older and a younger. Um, unfortunately, we lost my brother to this disease last year. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe it all just runs in the family, but um, I, I didn't want for much. We spent weekends down the shore in, in Jersey. Uh, I went to uh, eventually when we transitioned into uh, middle school, went over to St. Paul's, which is in South Allentown, South 4th Street, for those of you from the area. If not, it's all, you know, Catholic elementary and middle school is the same 30 kids for kindergarten through eighth grade, pretty much. And, and that's, you know, where, how it went for me. Uh, and, and so I don't recall anything jumping out at me as, as like, man, that's like the sticking point that would have given me a good excuse for some of the stuff that I did when I was out ripping and running. And, and I look back and, and through the time that I have, you know, accumulated uh, sober, I, I hear that more and more, right? Like I was looking for adventure. I was looking for something that was, was a little bit crazier overall as a whole. Um, and I think that, that as we see things on TV when we're younger and we, we latch on to things, as I watched my older brother get involved in, um, in ripping and running and, and his journey, uh, I wanted to be a part of. And, uh, you know, I got in a little bit of trouble, you know, 12 and 13 with drugs and alcohol. And um, that actually led me into a rehab really, really young. So I was introduced to the program by 14. I, I would love to say that that was it. It was not by any means. Um, but for the most part, mom, dad, three, you know, two brothers, uh, a, a straight A student up until about sixth grade. At that point, I kind of became the class clown. I don't know if I was looking for attention or just looking to be different. I will say that um, I think I've always suffered from a, a little bit of that terminal uniqueness. A lot of us alcoholics and addicts had just the need to do something a little bit different and be noticed. Uh, and, and, you know, whether that's a gene or whether that's um, something that's, that's causes and conditions lined up. I, I have no idea. My wife, who was also in that same 30 kids K through eight over there at St. Paul's still jokes to this day about how I got dared to, uh, in Catholic school, you got to wear uniforms, right? And, uh, our uniform consisted of a yellow button down shirt, like dress shirt and these, these sweater vests over top and like Navy blue slacks. And uh, I think one of my buddies, Mikey, had dared me to go to the bathroom, take my under, like my, my button-down dress shirt off and come back into music class in nothing but my, my vest, of which, of course, as a good alcoholic and addict, I had to be the one that was different and accept the dare. <laughs> um, and so as I walked in, you've got these 35 kids just laughing hysterically. I can remember with my bowl cut uh, turning bright red. Um, but, uh, you know, it was definitely different that day. I definitely got noticed, which was not happening. Cause again, I was that average kid, uh, you know, no jumping out, great parents, you know, I had great upbringing, great family memories, normal Christmases out with our family in Western PA, uh, again, trips down the shore. It's probably my favorite part of my childhood is my parents kept a camper down the shore at Long Beach Island. It's called Scrubby Pines Campground Ben. I think it's now called, uh, Long Beach RV Shores Resort or something a whole lot nicer now, but it's three miles off Long Beach Island. So we grew up, you know, going over the causeway in the morning and staying there all day. Sure, mom and dad drank, but in the 80s, that was, you know, I mean, that's what you did. Big station wagon, you jumped in the back seat. We were facing one way, got to the beach. You know, we were occupied for the next eight hours with the water and the arcades and the penny candy. And 
um, you know, when all that was wrapped up, we went back and, and had a campfire grilled and ran around in a campground where everything was safe. So, uh, again, I mean, that's my upbringing, a, you know, good family, good background. And my family was there from day one, stayed through, and, and, and they're still there today when Andy and Tom's there. That's super awesome. <clears throat> that's awesome that your family is very tight-knit like that. Um, and I didn't actually realize that we pretty much grew up in the same area. I actually went to that same elementary school. I also went to Hiram Dodd when I was a kid. Um, so I grew up in those townhouses right there, right behind South Mount Middle School. I grew up, uh, yeah, I grew up on, uh, I grew up on Mohawk Street. My house yeah, burned so you down. You literally grew up like three blocks from me because I South Delaware Street, last one on the last one on the uh, the row. So if you're on the top of the street, the top of the hill on Delaware, the last house on the right hand side as you're coming up the hill is where I grew up at. So you couldn't have been about three blocks on Mohawk. Yeah, I was, uh, I was on Mohawk Street, and then our house burned down, and then we moved over to the other side of the other part of South side on Brookdale still ended up going to South mountain, but I lived right over there then. So I, I grew up in that area. I was in South side Allentown up until, up was, until I moved to Bethlehem. More of a troublemaker. Yeah. <laughs> you got me, you got yeah, me beat so by. Me it was South Allentown until I got, uh, and we'll get more to that in the story, but I was South Allentown until I went to, I guess my first real time, like going away, away. Uh, would have been uh, a halfway house in in Boca, Boca Boca House. I think it's now called like Florida Recovery House or something. Oh wow! Um, but yeah, that was right before I went into the military. Okay, okay. Uh, but before we jump too far ahead, why don't you go ahead and tell us um tell us about your first experience with a drink or a drug? Then at that young age of twelve or thirteen years old, it was actually at South Mountain Middle School out of a gourd bowl, a bowl made out of a gourd. Uh, two of my brother's best friends. Uh, took me over there and I would never get high with my brother for whatever reason. I don't know why I didn't know he was going to tell on me or, or what was going on. But two of his friends, we were over at South Mount Middle School in them little alcoves where the doors are at facing the back, facing Iron Dodd and, uh, uh, you know, smoked a bowl of pot. And, you know, prior to that, I had had sips of beer and, you know, maybe like was the younger kid at the party. So my older brother and, and his friends might slip me a little bit of booze, but I don't remember anything specific from that experience other than that when I expected consequences they weren't there right like I'd watch my brother get in trouble and I'd watched you know other people around me get in trouble with drugs and alcohol but uh, you know I went home that night I went to sleep there was no I didn't get caught there was no sorry mom and dad um there was no uh, there was no consequences which may have been a bad thing for me like if I got my butt beat that night and I got caught maybe the rest of the story would be different. Um, and that was really my first experience with, with uh, a drug. Alcohol is a little bit different and that's, that's kind of been the catalyst. Like I never ended up on the wrong side of a crack pipe until I put a drink in it. Like in, in my story goes that far in. Um, when I had my first like real, like I'm gonna get drunk drink of alcohol, there was something inside that flipped. Like there was a switch that flipped and said, mm, how old was this? I, I'm, I'm going to like, we're going to have a love affair. Like, like we're going to be together for a while. Um, and so that would have been, that, that was at a party and it was St. I'd special brew. And it was a, uh, and it was my, one of my older brother's parties. Sometimes my parents would go away. Um, you know, you know, that neighborhood back in, in the, in the early nineties, it was nothing but kids. I mean, we roamed the streets until, you know, two, three and like, there was, there was, it was like, it was safe. So in this story you're referencing, away, how old were you? Uh, maybe 14. So I guess at that point, okay. I probably would have been about 14 years old. Okay. Um, and it was a house party. I can remember 
we always used to joke and say it wasn't a house party until somebody was naked in the bathtub. Uh, doors <laughs> locked and, and uh, nobody like, like, you know, those houses have one bathroom, most of them. So you got like 30 kids trying to use the bathroom and uh, somebody's locked in there, you know, butt naked in a, in a, a bathtub of water. Usually it was my older brother's girlfriend. But um, anyways, it was, I, I can remember it. it. It made me social when I was not. And it made me the center of attention, which I really, really, really liked. And, and me being the younger kid, I could be goofy and, and I, could, I could joke around and, and get away with a lot of stuff. Uh, so I, I remember loving being that center of attention and believing that alcohol was the reason why I was the center of attention and why I was able to talk, and why I was able to joke, and why I was able to come out of the shell. And, um, you, you know, that continued on as that liquid courage to do just about anything um, from that point on. Now, that didn't set off like a series of events of me, you know, all of a sudden becoming like a, a, a daily drinker or anything like that um, until you know, the, the middle of high school, maybe like, like end of freshman in the sophomore year. At that point, I started to hang out with some different people and it was the weekend parties. And I still was always the person with no off switch. Like everybody else was wrapping up for the night. And I was trying to figure out how we get more, how we get, um, you know, how we take it to the next level. Uh, and this all spiraled into me getting into a little bit of trouble and being introduced. I don't even know that it's still around anymore. I might've been 14 or 15 and I think I got in some trouble or something. My mom and dad got involved and I snowballed a bunch of bullshit that I'd heard my brother talk about and, and um, probably went a little bit too thick on the story trying to get out of trouble than I should have. And, and uh, somehow I ended up in a rehab, like 14 days that I think it was called St. Luke's Renewal Centers in Quakertown. And this is really where the drugs and the drinking took off for me, man, uh, because I went in there and these weren't like, these weren't South Allentown kids talking about drinking and smoking pot. These were inner city Philly kids talking about blowing lines and shooting dope. Um, and you start hearing about wet and PCP and you've never done none of that stuff or ever even heard of it. And it was like, holy shit, like I'm a, I'm a novice. I don't even like know. And, um, and, and I can remember getting out of there and it took a little while. Like I tried the sober thing. There used to be a group in Emmaus. I think it was called like Crossroads. And it was like 12 step for teenagers, but you put a bunch of teenagers together and, and uh, I'm not bashing the program by any means, but you put a bunch of teenagers together. They're all ripping it, you know, all running around sober or not. Um, it turned into a big social click and, and again, not a bad thing, um, but it did end up, end up leading to me and, and a bunch of other people going out together and ripping and running. And, and uh, now these gave me new buddies to go down and, and let's go to Del you know, Delaware County and let's, Let's, let's go down to, to, to Philly and let's see what we can cop. Um, and from there, you know, things started to go pretty, pretty haywire pretty quickly. And, and there was just never any, never, ever, ever any limits for me. Like, and, and what I mean by that is, is I still to this day, I don't know that I, I, I'm an addict and I'm an alcoholic. Don't get me wrong, but I suffer from a disease of more. I don't care what it is. If it makes me feel better about me, I'm going to stuff myself full of it. Um, whether it was a drink, a drug, a motorcycle, a woman, a house, uh, a car, uh, an accomplishment, an education, uh, a running event, and still to this day running events. Like I'm doing 100-mile races, and um, at the end of the day, that, that, that self-will run riot, like literally. And my sponsor has said that, like, yo, you are an example to the T of self will run right. And you just choose whether it's going in a positive direction 
or you choose whether it's going in a negative direction overall as a whole. Very, um, very true. I love that. And I think a lot of times we know that, you know, our addictive personalities and like you said, that more, more, more mentality, um, it, it's just so common amongst us. And I think what's important is to find, find an outlet and to embrace that positively, um, which you're definitely doing now. And, and I can't wait to get into that part of your story. Cause there's so many things that are so many things I've learned about you over the last few weeks. Um, so many gears rolling on, on like questions I have and things I kind of want to like brag for you on and have you talk on it. And I, I can't wait for that. Um, so when you were in this rehab, you're not even you're not even 18 years old. You're still in high school. You're still dealing with all that. Um, you know, that's, that's a lot for a teenager to, to be going on with. You're getting out there. So how old were you when you started? Um, when, when you say you're going out to the city to cop, are you starting to get some of these harder drugs at this point? Are you still only 16, 17 years old and now getting into the harder stuff? Yeah. So, uh, pretty quickly things spiraled out of control. Uh, once I was introduced to cocaine, um, it, it wasn't long until cocaine wasn't enough. And then that was getting cooked up into, into crack rocks. And uh, I mean, that's where things really, really, really start to go haywire at a young age. And so, um, my older brother at that point in time, you know, God rest his soul, had gotten involved in some of the harder drugs. And, and uh, I was, I was kind of right behind there. So he's grabbing and, and, and I'm following him. And now I've got the connections and, and we're kind of piecing this together. And at that point in time, now there, there's spots for us to go to, right? We've got friends that got apartments, and and and, and it's it's a little bit easier to sneak away and do these kind of things. So I, I think it was around 16 years old. I decided I was done with high school. I was not going to uh, to graduate. I was not going to continue on. I think it was my second sophomore year. My first sophomore year, I believe I had missed something like 122 days on excuse, uh, and they put me on something called the furlough program which is like I went in and got like third grade worksheets and was supposed to go home and do them. And that was, it was, just wasn't going to happen. Like it, I wasn't challenged. I wasn't like, I was like, this is stupid. I'll figure it out. And honestly, at that point in time, I was like, I'm either going to be a drug dealer or I'm going to be a movie star. Or like my head was just delusions of grandeur, right? Like life's going to be okay. You're going to figure this shit out. Even though like I had no idea how bad things were getting and how quick they were going to continue to spiral. So at some point, um, I took a night shift job. So back to South Allentown at that point in time, I think it was called Mountain View Manor, which was an old folks home right by the Turkey Hill on Emmaus Avenue. Okay. Um, and I took a, I think it was 17. And I know that the labor laws had changed. It was like enough that I, I had parents signatures or something, but I worked 11 at night until seven in the morning as a certified nurse's aide in a lockdown Alzheimer's unit. And if you want to talk about some just down, dirty, nasty butt wiping stuff you don't want to do, that's it. Um, however, this gave me an income. Uh, and my buddy lived in the uh, Whispering Hills. I think it's called something different now. But those are those tan apartments back behind there. And uh, Brian had uh, a one-bedroom apartment, and I crashed on the couch. And um, this was more a flop house than anything, right? Like dope dealers were coming over, dropping a quarter pound on the table. Hey, let's roll up and smoke. And that was day in, day out, spades go in, make money at night, you're locked out Alzheimer's unit. Like, I'm not going to say that I, not something I'm proud of, but it was definitely something where I would go in there, you know, relatively intoxicated on a daily basis, sit down and, and, and do my shit, you know, here nor there. Hopefully I can't be prosecuted for any of that. Um, but we're going to stick to the truth. Here. Um, so uh, I ended up meeting a girl there that uh, messed with heroin 
And I never really, never was never really my thing. I was more an upper guy, but it was good to come down, right? Like a long bender, you're blowing lines, you're, you're, you're rolling up some rocks and um, you need a way to come down. Like it's tough, it's hard. So this is where benzodiazepines, downers, heroin starts to come in as, as a way for me to, to, to deal with the fallout after a bad bender. Um, so I'm living on the couch and in my last rip and run uh, in this time period of my life, this goes on for about a year. So I'm not even 18. I'm living outside of mom and dad's control. Um, I'm not even really sure they knew what to do. They're in the middle of a divorce. My parents got divorced at 13. So again, pretty relatively you know, good upbringing, 13 happens, my whole world gets shattered, right? And I don't look, I, I, I didn't really look at it then. It was like, okay, mom and dad fought a lot, like we're getting divorced. But now I look back and like, maybe there was some kind of shift that happened there. Because that's also the same time, like I started like throwing caution to the wind and being like, you know what, I'm going to go hard in the paint. Um, so it, I end up living at Brian's. Um, we're ripping and running pretty hard and we're getting involved. And when I say ripping and running, like, on a daily basis, we're going up to Cumberland Gardens or Hanover Acres and we're, you know, we're grabbing 20 stones or, or we're grabbing a bag of this, a bag of whatever we get a hold of, right? Like there's some nights you can't find what you want. Um, and I would never, again, turn down anything that was going to make me feel better. Uh, and so this goes on for, I guess, about a year, year and a half. Um, and uh, I can remember our last run. Our last run Brian's family had owned a company and, and when they sold the company, he had gotten like a big paycheck from it. He was a little bit older than me, five, six years. And uh, this is like years before me and him hung out, but him and my brother had hung out. So Brian had a lot of stuff, you know, had an apartment, young guy, had a nice 240 SX, uh, you know, had a, had a motorcycle, had guns, had all this kind of cool shit that looked, you know, looked apart. Uh, and I can remember our last run, we went two pinball machines. We went about three grand cash in, about another two grand on front. Uh, we're talking like seven, eight days in, just nonstop last rocks. Uh, I think we traded a burner, got two pinball machines pawned, and like I just felt empty. Like that's the only way I can describe it. Like I hadn't eaten in eight, nine days. Like I don't know. For those of y'all out there that have messed with the uppers and have, have gone into that realm where like you can't stop and like you're scared to death, everyone in the world's after you, like just a really like just disgusting feeling, like shit is crawling on you. And I, I mean, like the, the, the insanity of it now, you know, looking back is just just bananas. Um, so I remember going back and sitting on my dad's porch. And I don't remember the exact situations, but I remember sitting on that porch and just being like, you know, I'm, I need help. Like, I don't know what to do. I need help, but I need to go somewhere. And this was the first time, like, I was serious. Like, some shit had to change because that's just not normal for, I think I had just turned 18, might have been 17, getting ready to turn 18. But, like, that's just not normal. Like, that, like you don't recreationally smoke crack. At least I don't know anybody that does. No, definitely um, not. And especially not at that age. No. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's really the, the downfall and, and where things, you know, spiraled out of control. And, and unfortunately my parents didn't write me off and, and, and they were still willing to jump in. And I think we went over to Southside family medicine and talked to our family doctor. And, um, I mean, I was ready. I, I wanted out of the game. I wanted to do something different. Uh, and, uh, that led really to my first run with sobriety. And again, I wish I could tell you, I'm, I'm a chronic relapser fall on your face pick your ass back up. And I almost like, 
from my own experience with recovery, that's almost the most heartbreaking way, right? Because like every time I would get up and things would go good, like I don't worry when I'm down. Like when I'm down and shit is bad, I'm a grinder. I'm going to hustle. I'm going to pick my ass up and I'm going to, I'm going to climb and I'm going to get there. It's when I get there and everything is well, for whatever reason, I can't stand that. Like I need the turmoil and it's not that way anymore. Like I'm starting to find peace by all means. I have my days where I am, I am a lunatic, right? And that's why I have fitness. And that's why I have all these (laughs) tools in the toolbox now that have worked for me for a, a sustained amount of time that I can go back into. But I'm getting ahead of myself. You know, my story will be rehab after rehab after rehab. How much time did you put together on that first on that first run? Uh, well, I want to say maybe a year. Let me think. So I went to White Deer Run Lancaster, and I want and I I want to say I was there for 45 days. We made the decision I was going to go to Boca House. Oh no, you know what? I'm wrong. We went to Boca. I went to Boca House. I think I was there for 90 days. And then, I mean, this is Boca. Miami's close. Some guys from the recovery house, I think I got to like phase two there or something, which was like, you could go out on the weekends or some shit. And some guys went down to Miami. And again, I was the younger guy. And these guys went out. And I think they started blowing lines. And I, I drank. I ended up passed out in some bushes somewhere. Um, but the shame and the guilt kicked back in, right? Like, I couldn't tell, you know, my parents what happened. I didn't want to tell anybody at the recovery house what happened. And if I remember correctly, I think I went back that day, didn't say shit, packed my bags and got on a bus. Uh, And I went to my brother's house in Rayford, North Carolina. So my brother during that time of me being like hanging out and ripping and running with Brian and then going to rehab, going to the halfway house, he had joined the military. So he had gone in the army and really straightened his life up. So he now had like a, a wife and a baby and a new house and had cars. And he wasn't sober by any means. I mean, he was still drinking like a fish, but the army had, you know, straightened about at least on the drug aspect of things. So I kind of followed the same path, like accidentally. I um, went on my way back from Boca I stopped at Nick's house and uh, I was like, wow, how the hell did you do all this? And at that point in time, now this is pre 9-11. So I'm not saying that the military was soft, but nothing had really happened in 30 years. So you joined the military for college money and a ticket out of where the hell you were at if you were screwing up. Um, At least that's my story. And that was his story. Uh, So Nick joins and he goes in, life's looking good. I stayed there for a couple of weeks. I'll never forget. I, I think the last night there, my dad came down to get me. And uh, at this point in time, we're boozing like every night. My brothers do. We're doing keg stands in the garage. And I'm like, man, you guys get paid to do this? They had just done like a South American counter drug op. And they're showing off pictures of hot women in Paraguay and all this stuff. And I'm like, man, something stuck. Like the seed was planted. Maybe this is a good life. But I do remember the last, me, my dad, and my older brother, uh, Nick especially, he would just, he just loved this whiskey called Fighting Cock Whiskey. And it was like a hundred, it was the most God awful thing ever, but him and his army buddies, man, these, these guys with the 82nd, man, they would, they would break out the fighting cock whiskey. And it was like, all bets were off. And I'm pretty sure me and, well, me and Nick got in a fist fight that night. And, uh, I'm a stubborn SOB. I don't know. You, you, you get that a lot with addicts and alcoholics and I, I got a chip sure. on my shoulder the size of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> um, and, uh, Nick, uh, uh me and him got in a fist fight 
and I wouldn't go back in his house. So I slept in a porta john in like January or February or some shit like that in, in North Carolina. And although it's not Pennsylvania cold, I know damn well that was a cold night sleeping in a porta john, half passed out because I was too stubborn to go back in my brother's house and sleep in the bed because we got a fight. So um, those stories continue to get worse um, in the alcoholism and in, in, in the addiction. You know, I learned, I would say probably, you know, four or five times into trying this thing and trying to get sober, that as my disease progressed, my runs got shorter and my consequences got much greater. And I am, the first 164 pages of the, the, the big book, I'm an AA guy, and that's just how I was brought up. Um, in the program, that first 164 pages, I could read it again. And I literally know almost all of it by heart. And, um, I became a student of this program and it does not make you good at this program, right? Like being able to regurgitate information does not mean it dropped from your head to your heart. Uh, and that's why I couldn't get it. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, so these, these ideas of like the self will run right and all this stuff just started to, to stick. And it talks about, um, you know, going back to where you were at or worse. And, uh, and that was me, man. Like I would pick it up and I'll be like, man, I could just have one drink. And the, and the next thing I know, like I'm in a closet somewhere, like, like hitting a crack pipe, like what the, like what just happened? Like, this is insanity. Um, you know, and that happens for me over and over and over again. And it just would always get worse. Always, always, always get worse until I'm out of jail cell. You know, and, and that's, you know, that's when wake up calls really start to happen. You know, wake up calls really started to happen for me. At least. For sure. And I, I like that you brought up the uh, the big book in the first 164 pages. Um, and every episode, I always uh, feel the need to say this and I'm going to do it again now. So obviously myself, this podcast, um, I have no affiliation with AA as far or NA or any of those programs as far as. You know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical professional. I can't tell people to go there. This will work for you. It'll make you sober, any of that. Um, this is just me talking to another person. We're talking about what worked for him, what works for me. Um, and again, I, I'm not here to thump anything specific or any any particular program down anyone's throat. I just know that AA worked for me and it sounds like, or it's working for me and it sounds like it's working for Thomas. Um, but I'm a huge advocate for any program that's out there that'll help keep people sober and clean off of the substance, off of the booze, whatever the case may be, whatever these programs are, as many as there are out there, we're all for it. Um, with that being said, and that kind of like little disclaimer, so to speak, um, I love that you brought up the, the first 164 pages because that's actually something I've recently acquired a new sponsor and trying to restart personally myself from step one um, as I come up on my three year sobriety right now. Um, cause I was, I was falling away from the step work a little bit. And so I'm getting into the first 164 pages right now, um, again, and kind of redoing it, doing that part from the beginning and getting fresh with it. And you're the, the second, uh, interviewee in a row that I've done. That's kind of specifically brought, brought that up. So I love it cause it kind of keeps me fresh and it keeps, keeps me remembering where I'm back at doing this now again as well. Um, and, and. The, the best part about that is, you know, the last person that I talked to that brought it up had a bunch of years. You have eight years. So you put those two together and it's like, these are people that have what I want. 
And, you know, this is what worked for them and is still working for them. So it reminds me how important that really is. It's not something that you just worry about in your first year of sobriety and think that these problems just go away. Um, it's something that's really important to keep working and getting through. So I love that you say that because it kind of brings me back to it. Um, another question I have for you. So you made it clear that you kind of keep going out and relapsing. And that's that's a big part of your story. If you had to make your best guess, how many times would you say you put together? Let's throw out how, how many times did you collect 30 days in that time from when you were 18 till when you sober up for what is the most recent time at 30 or 31? If I would have to say 30 day chips, I could uh, I could probably tile a bathroom. Wow. Um, wow. You know, it, it, uh, and that's, you know, not so much when I would make the decision I was going to go back in, it would usually be a little bit more of a sustained time. And then there would be some type of, of uh, event or, or again, I would get my stuff back, right? Like early in sobriety, do not think you get your stuff back and everything is, is hunky dory. For me, it's the exact opposite. I get my stuff back and be like, well, I have arrived welcome right <laughs> now i deserve to drink and drug um you know what i mean whereas when i'm on the bottom grinding i'm like man i gotta get up i gotta get up i gotta get up i gotta get up i gotta climb back to the top i gotta get you know i gotta keep going i gotta be there once the drug and the, once the drink and the drug are out of me overall as a whole and um you know looking back from that time period uh you know then i went into the military so i sobered up there um all through boot camp obviously no booze no drugs um and then going into the military you know, big drinking, you know, big, big, big drinking uh, culture. However, you know, obviously zero tolerance on the drugs. So you've got a, a huge sustained time period there where the drugs are out of my system, but I'm drinking like a fish, right? Because that's accepted. Um, you know, and so that's really like the next seven, eight years of my life uh, is me being in the, in the Marine Corps, um, ended up going in as an infantryman. I, I get back from that trip in Boca Raton, Florida. Uh, and like a week later, a recruiter calls me and uh, it's a Marine Corps recruiter, a little different than the army. However, I didn't know the difference. And, uh, you know, they talk about it in the big book about alcoholics being of, you know, uh, above average intelligence. I'm not saying I am, uh, and, and having the means to be able to generate an above average income. And I bring that up because I have, I haven't lost anything. I've given every single thing that I have earned away multiple multiple times in my life and in less than a decade i've gone from a jail cell to being a gym owner right so if you're in that spot i'm about bringing that hope and the experience that i have because without it i don't have anything else to give you right like i was telling the other day i was like if somebody walked in my gym and i was like i grew up perfect and my life has no trouble in it and i had a silver spoon and i've never wanted for anything and i have no idea what it's like to overcome things i genuinely don't think i would have very much to offer it's actually the exact opposite of it. All of the things that I've had to overcome, all of the experiences that I've had, negative and positive, have been rolled into, um, you know, essentially this, this uh, uh, safe, right? And so the safe, I talk about it sometimes, I've got a safe that I keep in my office or in my house and it goes everywhere with me. And it's, you know, a figure of speech, but that safe keeps all of the craziest things I've ever done in it, all of the failures, all of the shit that I'm not proud of. And it's in there and it's locked up tight. And on days when I think some shit is bad, all I have to do is take the key. And when I'm willing to open that box up and just peek a little bit into the safe, 
I only need a glimpse and slam that sucker closed, lock it back up, and I'm good. Today's great, right? I'm six feet on the right side of the ground and smiling. I didn't bang dope. I didn't smoke crack. I didn't take a drink. You know, I'm six feet on the right ground, uh, side of the ground and smiling. And, and for me, you know, with, with sustained combat time, nobody has shot at me with automatic weapons today. So I banged out five miles, saw some pretty flowers, went down by the river on the Palmer bike path. Do I got problems? Shit, I got tractor trailer loads full, right? But their problems are luxury when I really look at it in that manner. And, and that's a lot of, you know, why the program works, right? We're not going to forget it if we're staying active, we're staying involved, and we're talking to people. And it's not always in a meeting for me. I can't tell you how many people walk in through the doors of a gym that are restarting their own journey. And maybe it's not a drink or drug, but maybe it's they just, you know, they just got divorced, right? Maybe that's something I, I went through because of drinks and drugs. Um, you know, so you've got all these experiences and, and the rest of the world doesn't necessarily have a guidebook and a tool set to follow. And that's an advantage I think that alcoholics and addicts have is that once we're willing to accept, like, and the only way that we accept it is if we realize that we're going to die without it, right? Like the big book is very, very clear about that in step one. Who would want to admit all of this terrible shit that's happened to them and realize that, that the problem is here, here, and here, Right. The only way that you're willing to do that is if, if it's your life depends on it. It's very, very clear about that. Um, so I'm again, get, kind of getting, you can tell that the, the passion comes out. Um, oh, for sure. That's, that's why I wanted this. I knew this was going to happen. I knew I was going to get exactly this. But uh, so, so we look at it, right. Um, you know, I, I come back from, I'm going to jump back in the story. I come back from Boca. I joined the military. I go in, we've got this drinking culture. Now I've got sustained combat time. Um, you know, and, and that a lot of that combat time is in that safe, right? And when I want to look at it, yeah, there's some stuff that I've seen. Like I served with a scout sniper between the United States Marine Corps and Fallujah in 2004. I don't need to say much more for those people that understand the battle space and what that was like. Um, you know, and, and so I came back and, and I, my ex-wife would tell you I was a block of ice. I don't know that I was. I think that's what I wanted the world to think. Um, and I wasn't willing at that point to go, I've got a problem with alcohol because I had done that already. Right. And, and this is where my relationship with a higher power and God comes in, or, or I start to look back at, I was raised very staunch Irish Catholic, right. Sundays at church and, 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 and Catholic school and, and all that kind of stuff. So, so that God is different than the God that, that, that I have in my life today. Um, that God is punishing that God uh, doesn't have the same, like, like I'm not, I, I'm not trying to, 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 to get off track here too much, but like my first sponsor had me write down what my God would be on an index card. And I still have that index card today. It's, it's my wallet. Right. Um, and, and that God's my boy. Like I can cuss with him and like, I can take whatever problem to him and he's not going to judge me. So, uh, you know, having, having that, that, that idea there were things that I had to do in Iraq that I was not necessarily thinking God jived with. And also things I had to see that I was like, this is not okay. Like no one on, like, you can't, you can't tell me that this is supposed to happen if God's on my side. So it's not that I lost belief in God. It's just simply God, you're going to stay over here and I'm going to stay over here and do my thing. And we're going to be on different planes for a while. And when I came back, that stayed the same, right? So it's like, God, you're going to stay over here. I get a free pass because of what I did. I'm not an alcoholic and an addict. I'm a disturbed veteran with post-traumatic stress disorder, right? One people look down at you for. The other one is very, very similar to the same thing. Whether people want to admit that or not, 
we, there's a problem amongst veterans with opioid drug addiction. There's a problem with benzodiazepine addiction. There's a, we're losing 22 veterans a day to suicide, right? Like it's, it's sorry, but I'm going to correlate the two together. I go into the VA hospital. I'm over drinking. I'm not telling you that I can't sleep. That's the only way I know how to do it. And your response is to put me on an SSRI, a mood stabilizer, a benzodiazepine, and possibly pain medication. And it's gotten better over the last 20 years, but that's how we kill veterans. Like it just is. Um, so lo and behold, I fall into that same cycle. Now I've got, you know, you know, psychoactive medications that I can play around with, and I've got I'm already drinking too much. Um, and so again, I'm, I'm, I'm on the PTSD kit, right? Like I can get away with this. Um, I will say that in the process of that, I transitioned out of the military and I went to an entry level sales job that I was extremely talented at, um, you know, did well for myself in business, kind of rebuilt my life up again. Um, however, fall from graces are hard for me. Uh, so I, I rose to the top of the sales team very, 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 very quickly. And when those big bonuses started coming in, right, you get those big quarterly bonus checks. I was, I was starting to be nowhere to be found for a couple weeks at a time because I could sustain addiction, right? Like, why, are, why does it take so long for a rock star to admit they got a problem? Because if you got a million bucks in the bank, like, the average drug addict problems don't apply to you. Like, they don't. And that's just my opinion, right? Like, yeah, maybe you still hate yourself. But at the end of the day, like, you're not like an average Joe like I was wondering where the next meal's coming from and if I'm going to blow this on a, you know, 20 bucks on a, on a bag or whether I'm going to, you know, scrape together ramen noodles that we can try sobriety. Um, so that being said, uh, I'll kind of fast forward to the next couple of years. It's, it's a long, uh, it's ups and downs uh, of really, really high up on a sales team, making great money, looking like the shining shooting star and then throwing it all away giving it all away, pulling up to the bar. And I used to joke about it. I used to say, it's all good. I got everything now, but in a couple of months, I am going to pull up to a bar and I'm going to set my house keys, my title, my deeds, my bank account and cards on the bar because I'm just giving it to them. Like I know, I know the pattern. I know how it goes. And that's literally exactly how it would go for me. It would be the biggest months, my best month in business. I'll be killing it, looking good. I got the new girlfriend, the cars, you know, I'm whipping and bang, I'd rip and run. And it, 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 like looking back now, I don't want to say that it's funny, um, but I used to always keep, because again, I go until the money's gone or the cops are involved. That's it. Like that is my story. From there forward, every time I drink, it's until the money is gone completely. Like no savings, everything's gone. You got nothing left. Now you got to go to a rehab or you got to call back to mom and dad or you got to go beg your job, boss for your job back. And that happened, you know, if I start to really think back about it, you've got, I think I end up back in the valley at some point in time. And I end up uh, living on 8th Street and Harrison Street, actually. I think Bridgeview Apartments right there across from the 8th Street Bridge. Um, and I'm messing with blow again and I'm, I'm, I'm cooking it up and, and I ended up going into walking because at this point the car is gone, everything's gone over to Lehigh County Drug and Alcohol Intake, and they got me to Miramont. So County Dime, I got, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in Miramont, and I get out of Miramont, and here I put together, I want to say like a couple years, like maybe like a year, year and a half, somewhere around there. But anyways, I get out of Miramont, and um, 
I get offered a position back with, with the company I'm working with, the sales company. Uh, and I go to Florida. Uh, and Florida is really where real recovery starts for me. And I wish I could say that was the end. It's not. Um, but it's where real recovery starts for me. So <clears throat> in the midst of all this, I end up as like a regional director of sales down in Florida. I'm doing really, really well. And I can't even tell you. Actually, I can't tell you. I think I went out to a strip club with a bunch of my sales reps and three of them were like, why don't you just take a drink? You never drink with us. And why in God's name that made sense to me that night? I don't know, but we spent the whole night ripping and running. We had to be in the office at like nine in the morning uh, for like a, a, an event that involved like ride alongs on sales appointments with like new reps and, and vice presidents and all this kind of stuff. <coughs> Somebody smelled booze on me and I got a call a couple days later. Uh, now, now understand at this point, I have a six figure income, a badass condo, cool ass house. Like, like I'm living on the beach. Like it, it's there. Like I've arrived again. Um, and this was a tough one. Uh, my boss who ends up being the best man in my wedding years later, uh, and, and his protege sit me down and they let me go. And I'm like shocked. I'm like, there's no way this business is surviving without me. Like I'm 80% of production. Like, you can't fire me. And it was like, almost like, like this fight kind of shit, man. Um, and so I end up going back to my condo and, and I, I pack up what I can because I know I can't sustain it. I get into my uh, brand new Jeep and uh, I start the trek back to where the girl I was dating at, where I've got some, some good time sober. Earlier on when I first transitioned out of the military um, and tried to put my shit back together, in Fredericksburg, Virginia, um, I get there, I end up like losing my mind. I end up in like a lockdown psych unit for at least the fourth or fifth time in the story uh, at Mary Washington Hospital. Uh, and they send me to St. Luke's room, not St. Luke's room, I'm sorry, Sunshine Lady House, which is a crisis intervention center. My dad drives down and picks me up. We pack up what I had there. And I end up back in good old Allentown, not for very long, because again, I'm a mover and a shaker. Uh, so I, I don't remember the exact circumstances of how it all went down, but I ended up getting a spot to go back down to Florida and, and work for the previous employer again. Um, and from there, I screw up one more time, man. I, I screwed up again. And... Uh, at that point in time, when I screwed up, they took the company housing away. They took the company car. They had given me to get back on my feet again. They, they, I mean, like I was left a few thousand miles away from everybody I know. And, uh, and this was the first time where it was like, I didn't have help. Like, this was the first time I really didn't think I could call mom and dad and, and ask them for a couple hundred bucks to bail me out. And, like they probably would have given it to me. Maybe I was just too proud at that point or too ashamed. Or, I mean, I don't know, but I, I was living with a girl that I was dating um, God bless her. She was an amazing young lady. Uh, I don't know how she dealt with the bullshit that I put, put her through. Um, you know, in, in this whole story, I'm leaving out, having a child, going through a divorce, through the, the PTSD and, and losing custody of my kids. And I now have custody of my kids back. And like, so there's a bunch of stuff in there too. And I'll try to connect all those pieces together. It's a lot when I think about it. Um, but, uh, you know, so at this point in time, I don't really have contact with my older daughter who is now 18 years old and lives with me full-time um i 
I don't have my younger daughter who's three. Um, I'm not with the woman I'm with now. I've been married with, uh, married to for five years, I believe. We've been together for seven. Um, so uh, I know I have to do this on my own. And this is where like the weird God winks kind of stuff. I don't believe in coincidences. I believe God winks at us and sees if you notice. Um, start to happen for me. So I'm looking for a place to live. I know it's like the last couple of days I'm going to be in the condo. Uh, and I found a place in Cocoa, Florida. If anyone has ever been in this area of Cocoa, Florida, not pretty Cocoa Beach, Florida, Cocoa Hood Ash, Florida in Bird Plaza Mobile Home Park. A guy named Mark, I'm not going to say his last name, but a, a guy named Mark owned the place. And so I went to uh, uh, I went to like fill out an application to get a single wide trailer in Cocoa, Florida. That was like 500 bucks a month. Cause I knew like I could probably pull that off. Now I'm coming out of like a $400,000 beachfront condo with bamboo, bamboo hardwoods and, and Italian marble. So this is like God going, all right, dude, like it's time to get humble, bro. Um, and so Mark ends up meeting with me and, and he sees on the application, like, Marine and and the sales aspect, the sales uh, industry I was in is alarm systems. So I designed and sold alarm systems. And he's like, okay, so you know about security? He's like, you know, we're having a lot of problems in the park right now. Problems like, like meth problems. He didn't say that, but I would later find out that's what the problems were. Um, so now you got the dope fiend running around telling the other dope fiends not to do dope outside or he's going to call the cops because the deal me and Mark came to is I could live in the trailer for free, but I had to patrol the ground three times a night and report any suspicious activity with police. Well, this also did not make me very popular in this trailer park. So now you got a paranoid dope fiend living in a single wide trailer trying to stay sober. Now I'm, I'm detoxing at this point, guys. All right. I got to come up with some money to feed myself because I got no income. The savings is gone. The license plate fell off my 1989 like Chevy Blazer because that's what I had left. I think I sold that for like 600 bucks because you can't drive it around drunk and get pulled over with no license because then your whole life's over. Like this is the crazy shit. And this isn't the craziest. Um, you know, and I'm trying to stay sober. I'm detoxing. I found out that, again, we're going to talk about God working. I did not look at it as God working in the time. I ended up with a black 10-speed bicycle, which I later ended up turning, you know, a sponsor ended up copping from me for like five bucks because I had to hold him accountable for something, but he got some meetings on it. But anyways, so this bicycle becomes my whole damn life. So within walking distance of this trailer park, I discovered there's a labor ready. So now you've got a seasoned sales rep, the vice president of sales that's making six figures. I'm two weeks into detoxing off booze hard, July in Florida, living in a single wide trailer park, dealing with child support, losing 60% of my paycheck at the end. Guys, at $7.25 an hour, that's $18 a day you take home after you pay your labor-ready driver. Thank God I could walk there, right? And my work ticket was chasing garbage trucks in Florida, being the guy throwing the garbage in. Now, let me explain that that requires you wear jeans and steel-toed boots as well. So just imagine, I don't know what your detox story is, but just imagine you're doing it in July in Florida, chasing a garbage truck, making $18 a day, living in a single wide trailer with every excuse in the world to just end this shit and die using. Because I had every reason, at least in my opinion, I did. So 
you know, at that point in time, I detox up a little bit and I, I have another bender. I go on this bender and, and I don't know what the difference was. I don't know. I still, I still to this day don't know if I was hallucinating. Uh, but I know I went pretty hard and that girl that I talked about day and I, I kind of like dropped off the map and she was worried about me and she knocked on the trailer door on my birthday. Uh, and I, it had been about a month. Like I was in no shit, like month long blackout. And I don't care if you believe me or not. I'm not trying to overblow. So I literally don't remember the month. She like knocked on my, she was like, I just wanted to make sure you were live on your birthday. And I was like, it's my birthday. I think I started drinking in April. Um, so uh, I come to from this and there's this moment of like, I still don't know again, whether I was dreaming, hallucinating or what, but I can vividly understand that everything I needed in life. Now, now I stayed sober during that time. And I had this, I have to tell the story. I had this little, this little jar. It was like a peanut can I got from the dollar store. Cause I could walk and go get groceries and at $18 a day, you could put together some pretty great cowboy casserole. That's a crock pot for you dope fiends that are still using. It's a crock pot. You slice up some potatoes you get. You put that down on the bottom. And then you get the shitty-ass dollar ground beef from the dollar store. You put a layer of that, spread over some, some tomato sauce on top of that. Then take a can of corn, put a little, and you just layer that shit. Some onions. And leave it in there for about four hours. It'll feed you for a week. But this, is, this was my life. Um, patrolling the ground three times a week. Go chase the garbage trucks. Trying to stay sober on my own. You know, and, and it leads to another time where I'm ripping and running and I go on like a four-week bender. In the process of that, I, I, I don't, I, again, I still don't know if I went to sleep. I don't know what the hell happened. I know that, that I was told by something that I was going to be given everything I needed. Needed. Not wanted. Because I wanted dancing girls and fucking sports cars. I wanted shit that means nothing in the grand scheme of life, y'all. Um, I was going to be given everything I needed if I listened. If I didn't listen and I decided that I was going to smack that hand that was giving this away to me, then there was evil waiting for me. And I still, like, I, I, get, you can probably, like, I get scared thinking back to that moment. Like, it was just, it was, like, super weird. So, Again, I believe that that was a waking vision. I don't believe that I was asleep. I don't know what it was, but it was enough that like, okay, maybe I need to do something. When I actually came to and was like lucid again, I could think, um, I reached for the phone and I called AA. You know, something said, call AA. Don't end it, just call AA. Because that was the other option, right? Um, we all get to that point where we don't want to die, but we don't want to live like we are anymore. Right? Like, I'm not a believer that, that alcoholics and addicts go out and kill themselves. I believe that they are trying to stop the pain. This is a lot, but I, this is... So, anyways, I call AA, and here's where shit, like, just gets, gets too, too real to not pay attention to. So, I get on the phone, I call the hotline, I'm, I'm telling the guy the same story I'm just telling you. And I'm like, yeah, like, I only have a bicycle, so I can't get to meetings and blah, 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 blah. Every excuse that there is. So um, he starts laughing hysterically at me. And I'm like, I'm like, this shit is not funny, dude. So he's like, no, nah, I'm just laughing because you're, you called on the right day, man. And I was like, why? And he's like, well, you're in Bird Plaza, right? 
And now in Florida, it's AA is a little different. I don't want to say it's different, but there's not a lot of like church basement meetings. There's a lot of clubhouse meetings. Like people have rented spaces, like change on third and Easton where it's like, it's a full-time meeting. Like they run meetings sometimes 24 hours a day. Um, and so a lot of these clubhouses are manned and, and, and they're around the clock or, or there's somewhere you can go or somebody you can get a hold of all the time. So he said, I want you to, to, to walk out your front door. I want you to walk across the railroad tracks and you're going to see a little strip mall. The third door on the left-hand side, um, and I want to say that it is the, I think they still call it the world famous Coco 11th step meeting. But it's a no shit, like 12 to 24 hour a day AA clubhouse, less than a block from this damn trailer that God put me in. Oh. So, now what excuse do I have, right? I've got meetings I can go to with walking. I got my little 725 an hour job, you know, making 18 bucks an hour. I got, uh, you know, food to eat. I got, you know, the bike to get around. And this is also where fitness starts, right? Because I'm getting in pretty damn good shape chasing these garbage trucks. Well, that work ticket and doing the right thing and really getting dug in. And I, I often joke that when I went into the world-famous Coco 11-step meeting, I'm sure it wasn't like this. But the way I remember it was there was like 10 old-timers with one light bulb in the middle, and they were all smoking and they had ZZ top beards and big books, and they were ready to punish the internet. And they did. I mean, these were big book thumping, buy the book, 164, don't tell me your opinion. I will tell you what my big book says kind of guys. And that's what I needed. I mean, it, it's not what I preach today, but it's what I needed then. Um, and I got bludgeoned, bludgeoned. I mean, <laughs> These are guys that would walk around with buttons on that said no excuses club. And it was like a big deal to wear one. Like you had to be invited into this club. If your ass falls out, you put it into a wheelbarrow, take it to a meeting and tell somebody. That was the mentality. Um, and so, you know, this is where things start to click and more and more starts to happen. So you've now got, uh, this leads to me starting to go to local community college about seven blocks away. Start working on my personal training aspect. I get a job at a Hobby Lobby on a work ticket, uh, building there full-time for about six months. So I build a Hobby Lobby. They bring me on as like the full-time stock guy. I go in at three in the morning, unload trucks. I get off at four in like, like one in the afternoon. I go surf for two hours and I go, and now I'm a certified personal trainer with a little bit of time, like five, six months. And so I go in and, and, and I train people at the local planet, right? And, and, and looking back, Sometimes I got to kick myself to say this. Sometimes I almost think I progressed too fast from there. Um, Cause it's one of the funnest, most exciting, most humble, really amazing times in my life where I could just, I could just see beauty in the world everywhere I looked. Right. I'm on a wave. Holy shit. How did you end up here in six months? I'm, I'm, you know, on a, they're big on 12 step car down here. I mean, you'd be three days sober and puking. And they'll be grabbing your ass and taking you in like you're going on a 12-step call. What the fuck do you mean? I'm three days sober, dude. I don't care. That dude's not sober. Like, you're going to remember what it was like three days ago when you called me. Um, you know, so it was like you just the, – the gratitude and the beauty was so real that I can look back and go, like, wow. Like, that's, that's recovery. Like, that's, like, in the thick of it, right? Like, if we could just bottle that up, 
and like injecting into people with 50 years, which I'm sorry. You can, anybody out there, look, if you're 50 years sober and you're still pissed off at the world, like, I'm not going to say it, but you keep it to yourself, right? Like, because I don't want, you don't have what I want. Um, so anyways, like, and there's plenty of people out there that like that. I mean, shit, there's days I had it like that, but I'm not eternally like that. If we could just bottle that, that I love life, this is what I want, beauty that we feel, you know, when it clicks and the lights go back on, I, I genuinely don't think that we would have the relapse, you know, percentages that we have in this thing. We forget that, you know what I mean? And uh, I agree and, with you. It's, it's sad. Um, so anyways, uh, I put together a, a good amount of time now and I'm trying to even to think like, like how the, the next relapse happens and, and where I end up at from there. Um, bah, 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 bah. So now I'm, I, I mean, I'm in depth in the program. There's a little spot called Coco village. They got another, uh, uh clubhouse and, and I'm incredibly active in the program. Uh, this leads to me from that full-time job. I know what happens next. I, uh, I started going to a church, and uh, it's uh, Calvary Chapel in Melbourne, Florida, which to give you an idea, the Melbourne campus on an average Sunday has about 10,000 people in the building, not including the people that are online or other campuses. Incredible pastor. Um, and I really started to see, you know, started to adopt my concepts of the God of, of my understanding. Um, and... Uh, from there, again, God's very interesting. My project manager from the previous six-figure income job uh, happened to see me at church. We both ended up happening to be in a men's small group together. He took that information to the president of the company, and within like three weeks, I was hired back. Uh, into the same style position, same style income, like out of the trailer park. I have arrived again. Start to see a pattern here. It don't work out well. Uh, and and so this was the last time that uh, you know I had really had really had that opportunity. I did very well there. I ended up uh, in uh, in a position and, and and did well there. And ended up pissing it all away and coming back to PA on like a whim. And honestly, God, I can't even remember what the, the snowball effect that, that led to the last fall was. Um, I know I ended up back in PA. Oh, I do remember. I got a huge bonus, and I came back to PA to show off, and I ended up at Platinum Plus. Kind of floss and like a boss. Yeah, yeah. I ended up going, I didn't even know it existed. Like I hadn't been back long enough. And I passed, I'm coming back in from 78. I passed the uh, Platinum Plus billboard and I was like, I'm gonna go to Platinum Plus. And uh, I had a bunch of money in my pocket. And uh, I went there and I spent the next seven to 10 days ripping and running, going back and forth from Platinum Plus to, uh, I had booked like a big suite at the Sands. And you were sober when you got back though? Yeah, so I ended up drinking like that day. Like, like when I came back, that was the fall. And, um, I ended up going on, on a pretty nasty bender and it ended with a third DUI charge. Um, and in PA, if you're familiar with a third DUI charge, it ain't pretty. You're going to jail. Um, you're going to jail. Uh, and you're, you're, you can hire a $10,000 attorney, which I did. And you're still going to jail. 
Um, so now my situation with that is a little bit different because, because that was a wake up call. And again, remember I told you that the periods of sobriety longer, the, the, the relapse is shorter and the consequence is bigger. That relapse lasted about 10 days and I had years sober at that. Um, and, and 10 days turned into my entire life, uh, again, being ripped out from underneath me. So now I've lost the opportunity that I had with the alarm company. I really kind of shit the bed with my reputation in the industry. Um, and thank God I had fitness to fall back on and I knew that's what I wanted to do. And, and there's a bunch of different details and gym jobs and stuff that I'm missing in there as a whole. But uh, I, uh, I, I went back because I lived in Virginia. I was so drunk. I think my BAC was like 0.42 or something. It's definitely highest here, which means you're, you're doing a year. Um, four two <laughs> that's that's it's five high. that's five times the legal limit yep so it was over three I, I mean i know it was over three times the legal limit that could be alcohol poisoning for some it is so and again when they see you that you're functioning at that level and again i don't even know how it's physically possible because i hadn't drank it at that time again i believe that there's something inside of us that is just wired different um so i end up uh they took me to the hot, like when I got pulled over on third and Polk, I could see the sands. And I remember being so pissed and I had a meth dealer and two strippers in the Jeep. Um, I got pulled over. They asked me if I knew why I said, I can imagine why. And they explained that it was for my vehicle. I've been, you know, uh, reported for erratic, erratic driving. And I just kept thinking, man, I can see the sands. And I just made it into the parking garage and I just made it into the hotel. But I also knew like the gig was up and I wasn't upset about it. Um, so the cop, you know, asked me to step out of the car and I said, you know, honestly, sir, like, and I, I somewhat remember this because I somewhat tried to like sober up and, and I was basically like, let's not make an ass out of you or me. Like, let's just get this over with. I'm wasted. Like I've been ripping and running for seven days, blowing shit up my nose. Like it, it, there's no need for us to do a sobriety test. I can't stand. Uh, I woke up in the hospital, like with like a business card from the police station. Like I... I guess they released me on my own recognizance. I never, like, I didn't go to jail. Like, it was the weirdest thing. I have to tell the funny story here because the funniest part of the story is, like, go to the police station and collect your belongings. Well, I lived in Virginia at the time, so I was released on my own recognizance. I didn't, like, have an arraignment that day. Like, I don't know. I went there and I picked my stuff up. And I don't know, for those of y'all that aren't from the area, Platinum Plus is a strip club that gives you $2 bills instead of $1 bills. Well, when you cash in $5,000 for $2 bills, the cops don't have a $2 bill counter, which means you have to sit there with the worst hangover of your life while the cops laugh at you and count out the $3,500 in $2 bills that is left. Um, so I, I went to Virginia. I went back to Virginia that day. Like I got in the Jeep, drove back down to Virginia. I had a court date set for my arraignment. Um, and it was like months out. And then I got an attorney and then I went to rehab. So I went to, um, shit, it's in Staunchburg, Virginia, Staunch, Staunch, Staunton, Virginia, White Oaks, White Oaks Rehab. I went there. So I go to that rehab, um, and I get out. What do we do next? I get out. I come back up here. I stay sober the whole time. I come back up here. Like, my shit's still down. Like at that point in time, stuff's still down in Virginia, yeah. So I come back up here. 
go to my arraignment, and my lawyer's like, $5,000 is like the worst trip patient you're going home today. And I don't know if it was like something I said or like there was some kind of weird shit that went down, but the, uh, it was Nancy Matos oversaw the hearing and she was like, I, I want to say it was like 50,000, no 10% because I was, she considered me a flight risk because I had, you know, the ability to leave and go back to Virginia. Um, so I went to, I mean, I went to jail that day, uh, sober. And um, I think I had to spend 97 days in jail. And then I, I got in front of uh, somebody in Northampton County that was like, we got to do a PSI on this guy, pre-sentence investigation. And they were basically trying to prove that I wasn't a shithead. Like my lawyer was trying to prove it. The judge saw like maybe there's some hope here. Lori Collins at that point in time was the TCAP advisor. I probably shouldn't say that name in full, but bleep it out or something. Anyways, she was like, at this point in time, I like, got to realize, like, this is a year and a half later. So I'm sober. I've gone to rehab. I'm involved in meetings. Like, sponsors are there. Like, everybody's, like, on my side. Um, and the thing was, is, like, the ticket, like, the best I was facing was a year. Like, that's what I was facing. And it's hard to give somebody a year when they've already done everything that you would ask them to do. You know, so, like, the TCAP program back then which is like basically ARD for like a third DUI. It was like six months rehab, six months, or like three months halfway, three months jail, three months halfway house, three months, uh, three months uh, house arrest, whatever. It equals the 12 months of your freedom. And in Northampton County, that was the best you were ever going to do. House arrest was like second best. I still don't know how it happened. Uh, another kind of God moment. And, uh, it's kind of cool how it comes to fruition later on down the line, but, um, they do my PSI. There was a lot of character reference letters. There was people from the VA. My parents were there. Like, so when, when I actually ended up in front of a judge for sentencing, my bags were packed. Now at this point in time, I had met my wife. We started dating. Like, it's kind of hard. Like maybe I'm going to get locked up. So if you want an easy out, like if I get locked up, like, I get it. Like, this ain't going to work. She was ready to ride or die. So, uh, fortunately, uh, at that point in time, like, I had a pretty miraculous, uh, like, doesn't happen very often. Hadn't happened in 22 years in the Northampton County Courthouse in Judge Zito's courtroom. Uh, all of these people went to bat for me. To the point where, like, the TCAP advisor is like, yo, He's already done everything I've asked him to do. And I know that he's legit because I see him in meetings um, without a sheet getting signed. So because of some, some awards that I got in the military that, that are very rare, um, Judge Zito looked at me and said, son, in 22 years on the bench, I have never deviated from state sentencing guidelines based on your extreme military history and all of the references. I'm going to count time served and, and put you on an ankle bracelet under the custody of the TCAP advisor. So it was even like I had a probation officer um, for the next nine months. And that's going to be your 12 months. The only stipulation is you have to be in your house by 8 a.m. or you can't leave your house until 8 a.m. And you uh, have to be in your house by 8 p.m. Now, at this point in time, 
I redesigned my life to all be within three blocks. So I lived on 11th and Linden in a little loft apartment. I rented about 500 square foot of office space to sell alarms via the phone uh, in the Hamilton Business Center, which was like an incubator for small business. And I would go in and dial cold call lists and sell alarms over the phone from like, and at that point in time, the nooner, the, uh, the brown bag meeting was like right up the street. I can't remember the address, but um, everything was within walking distance. And so I rebuilt a business, you know, talk about like people make excuses. I'm not big on accepting excuses because my story only works without it. Um, but I would, I would wake up, I'd go in, I'd dial in, I'd sell alarms from eight in the morning until seven at night when you got to be off the phone on the East coast, I'd flip and I'd roll, uh, to West coast time. And until I got that apartment, I lived, I lived in my mom's house and I showered at Planet Fitness, uh, cause I was like too proud to be living at mom's house. So. At that point in time, I started dating my wife. I had a little, like, couch in my office. It was a futon, and, like, date nights were, like, sushi. If I could scrape together some money to have it. And I was, like, working filleting fish on the side at the farmer's market. This is, like, shit I forget. Um, like, walking everywhere. Uh, so just, like, nuts. Um, so, I mean, that's really, like, where I rebuilt my life. Like, nine months of house arrest and meetings. Like, not even required because I had already done it all. Um... I did that. I started training on the side. I built a bunch of sales teams and, and did well there. Um, and then from there, like, like real recovery set in and took place. Like, you know, like the miracle happened. Like, and so from there, I end up, uh, you know, building those sales teams. And then I ended up in a gym down in Bucks County, full-time training. I remember being on the DNL riding my bike and, and I still have the, you know, when you do your runs and like you, you can do like your screenshot in your Garmin app. I yep. still have the shot in the Garmin app that the, 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 the quote is inter, and much less money interviewed for a fitness director position in Bucks County, praying I can spend my life working out. Like, whoo, I'm a crier. If you haven't figured it out. Like that shit just hits home, dude. Like I'm living my dream. And some days that's easy to forget. Cause your dream is, it, it, it's hard, dude. Like if everyone, like if living your dream was easy, all of us would be doing it. I'm not the one that's going to sit and tell anybody this shit is easy. Cause it's hard. It's the hardest thing you're ever going to do. But 7,200 square foot of this space also tells me that there's a reason everybody's not doing it. Cause it's worth it too. Like the juice was worth the squeeze. You know, and my, uh, my story starts out being a meeting maker, right? Like meetings, meetings, meetings. And I'm not that way now. I, I should be, right? Like, because I need that. I need to not cry when I talk about my story because I should be remembering it every day. Fuck that. I, um, I cry. On, I cry. I've cried on at least half a dozen episodes on here and I get the chills and I get like, like right now you're making my hairs stand up on my arm and I get like that. And I probably say, I literally think I say that on every episode. It's. And it, you know, I mean, these, these are emotional stories. I mean, there's, there's, there's some things that are a given with almost every one of these interviews. And that's that we're going to curse a lot and that we're going to get very emotional. And that's because at the end of the day, and like, I'm getting emotional just thinking about this, this is going to become one of those, I'm not crying. You're crying moments. Like, <laughs> but like in all seriousness, man, this is, um, these are, these are our like, stories. These cry? are, like, these are our lives. Interviews? What's that? I mean, and that's the beauty of it, right? Like, 
when, 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 you know, the only time I would, like, there was no emotion, right? Like, we're just blank slates until the lights come back on. And I guess that's the beauty is that we can cry. And I share these moments. I guess that's one of the cool parts of, like, my, my career and my passion and my life now is that I share these moments openly with people in my gym, right? Like, Phoenix Pit, like, is about coming out of the ashes, right? Like, if my story, again, was like, yo, I grew up with a silver spoon in my mouth, and, like, I never had to struggle – it sure as hell couldn't be called Phoenix Fit. You know what, what I mean? Yeah, like, wouldn't so make sense. It, but it's, these... it's, again, sharing that, you know, is, is again, I see the lights come on for people that, you know, it's weird how drug addiction can help somebody that just fell on their face in a divorce or lost a job or, like, any of those things. Because then they look at you and they're like, damn, dude, if you can get through that, like, I could get through anything. And I call it the other side of possible. For 100, 100%. And these these are... These are just, these are our stories and this shit is real. And this, this is emotional stuff. And, and you just, I, I can't say it enough. This shit, it's, it's just real. This is real, real people talking real stuff. These, these aren't scripted. I mean, you can, you can vouch too. We talked for about 45 seconds before I hit the record button, just telling you the order of sequence on the, on the way we were going to go over things, but these aren't scripted. These aren't, hey, you know, let's talk about this story because I know it's going to get you emotional. This is just like, hey, just tell your story and however it goes, it goes. Um, and holy shit, did you have, dude, there's a lot in your story. I mean, I think this might be the quietest I've been on any of these podcast interviews just because I almost didn't want to interrupt when you're telling some of this, some of this stuff. It's just, it's, it's unbelievable. And normally right now is... Um, when I would go in and I would, I would pretty much ask you to explain what works for you, but I think you definitely already covered a hundred percent what works for you because, you know, along with the relapses, but you, you made it very clear, um, being in the rooms, working the program, having a sponsor, making it to meetings. I mean, you, you pretty much covered everything, um, because you went through a lot of this with even, even before some of these relapses as well. So it's, I, yep. I think you, you covered all of that for us, um, the last, the last question I do have about your recovery story, and then I want to jump straight into the fitness aspect for you um, with, with a lot of people on here, because, and I don't mean this as a braggy thing, but this is just me personally. I'm trying to achieve the whole 50 percenter thing. Um, you know, uh, when you hear it in the beginning, I think it's in the, in the, the preface, you know, 50% of us um, that go into the rooms, get it on the first try, 25% get it on the second try. And then 25% just continue to be better. Um, me right now, I'm personally trying to become a 50 percenter, um, knock on wood. There's been no relapses since the first time I said out loud that I'm an alcoholic and I went into the rooms and, and I started working a program. Um, but for someone, you know, relapse is such a huge, huge, huge part of 99% of recovery stories. I think I've only interviewed um, now with 30 plus interviews that I've done, I think I've only had like two, maybe three people that don't have a relapse in their story. So it's, it's the, the majority is with the relapse. So it's not even a bad thing, but for those people out there, would you agree and confirm that it really does the, the relapse portion, it gets, it gets worse every time, but it's, it was, it's such a huge part for you and it made you who you are today. And it makes you appreciate your sobriety that much more. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, man. I mean, if you fall down nine times, you only got to get up 10 to be a success. And that's the beauty. I mean, you can fall in there. It, there's no maximum on how many times you got to fall down. Um, and, and we like to think, you know, and we'll just use you as an example because you've been through it. We like to think that, 
you know, this is your last go around and, and I'm praying for that. I'm sure you're praying for that. Everybody, everybody out listening is praying for that. But even, even if it wasn't for you or for the next person, or even for myself, you know, if, if you fall down nine, you get up 10, but if you fall down 99, you get up a hundred. It doesn't matter. As long as you get up one more time than you fell down, that's all that really matters. And, you know, just never give up. Um, is just very, very important. Now I do want to get into your fitness aspect. Um, Cause you have so much going on. I can't help but notice all of those medals up there that, that are over your right shoulder. You got a lot of dope shit. You're a gym owner. Um, it's just unbelievable. So why don't you talk about what fitness means to you? Um, now is definitely a chance that you can have to kind of quote unquote brag about yourself and the stuff you've accomplished. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and I know this is your most recent, but one of the things that I want to point out, cause this is the, this is the one thing that I've seen, or sorry, two things you've done since I've known you. Um, right before I actually met you, but it was talked about at that walk for recovery, is you pulled off uh, a super awesome, I think it was a, a 100K, or I think it was 100K for the walk for recovery in which you raised money for that fundraiser. It's 100 miles. Okay, 100 miles. And that was, that was super awesome. Um, 100 miles raising money for the walk for recovery. Uh, I think you raised over $2,000. Yep. Yep. So that's super awesome. And then down, you were just down in Florida at the, uh, at the, was it the Florida Keys or Key Largo? Yep. Something? Key yeah. Largo, the Atlantic Ocean, the Keys 100. Yeah. So the Keys 100 did, did that out there. Um, and, and this is a huge part of your story as well. You did not complete it. However, you didn't, you didn't shy away and try and make excuses. You didn't try and say, well, this is, this is that, or this is that, or, you know, the, the course or blah, blah, blah. You didn't try and make any excuses. You just said, Hey, you know, fuck it. We didn't have it. We didn't have it today, but we're not going to give up. We'll be back. We're going to do better. And, and that's it. And you just, you made it a point to, to, to not just dwell on, on the failure, so to speak, but to highlight the effort and, and the willpower to say, you know, we're going to focus on the next challenge. We will be back and we will accomplish, we will conquer. Cause you know, that's what a Phoenix does. You, you're going to rise out of those ashes. And I absolutely love that. So uh, go ahead and, you know, the way you do go ahead and talk about what fitness means to you. And a lot of these accomplishments that you've done um, and, and all the stuff that you've been able to pull off. So I think it was like two years ago, I got featured in a, uh, well, featured in ultra running magazine for my concepts of uh, um, the other side of possible, which is kind of like this idea that we're all built to do great things and we just don't even really know it yet. Um, and then, you know, I think this, this newspaper article, I don't know if they can see it or not, or if you do video or what you we do. We don't do it, video, but, but if you pull um, it up, I can talk about it. We'll see it. it. We got it here. So fitness saved my life in the morning call. And that's really it, right? Fitness saved my life. Um, so this isn't my, you know, first go around. It was life or death for me. And, um, you know, I was featured in, in, in opening the gym and, and things like that in the morning call several times. Uh, and then an ultra running magazine for, uh, uh, for my, my win at Transpecus Ultra, which is a uh, 170 mile race from West Texas through the Big Bend, uh, state park, uh, along when you say win, do you mean, do you mean like age group? Do you mean like gender or do you mean like first place? Woo. He's showing us some bling, ladies and gentlemen, he's showing us some bling first place, my man. So, um, you know, I went out there with some Marine Corps buddies and uh, we actually went out and we got there 
I told uh, I told Gabe, who was my first team leader and rolls with me a lot on uh, to crew these things because uh, ultra running is a team sport. I said, man, you got uh, Eric and Tommy Chen out here who at that point in time were gunning on world records. And You're not I talking said, about Gabe Gian, are you? No, uh, Gabe Castleberry. Okay. Um, he lives out in Missouri. So uh, he, um, you know, I told him, I was like, I'm out, I'm out of my league here, bro. I'm, I'm not even positive I can finish this thing. And, uh, and, and we came up to the last stage and it's a, it's a 50 mile run. And I asked, uh, now you got to remember at this point in time, we're 120 miles into the race. And I asked Tommy, I said, I said, how fast are you going to run this? And he said, 12 hours. And I went to Gabe and I said, Gabe on fresh legs on my best day on this course, I might run an 1150, but I'm probably closer to a 1230, which means I was losing that race. Um, and, uh, about halfway through that stage, Tommy passed me, patted me on my back and said, you're a tough son of a bitch, but you're not that tough. And that was the wrong thing to say to a Marine. Um, cause I knew at that point in time in the middle of the desert, all I had to do was keep his headlamp in sight. And because of cumulative time of the stages, I was ahead by about 21 minutes. I knew I had it. Um, I will also say that the last nine miles of that race were some of the few times that I have questioned whether death or going home to my children was the right decision. What I mean by that is, is that with your shielder on it came into my head uh, and I was willing to die for the win. And I did a um, 163 mile race one by four minutes means that Tommy and I ran at milliseconds different per mile. Yeah. I just, and again, that's, I was going to point that out. It's you're, you're talking yeah, four minutes over 163 miles. It's and like you said, I, I want to stress that that is, that is that close. That is that is the equivalent to holy shit. We just watched the the hundred meter sprint at the Olympics, and we're gonna have yeah. to wait for the next three minutes while they go to the photo finish because it was that close. Like yep. that's so unbelievable. It, it's way to start, so you don't know. Like you don't know that you won until they divvied everything up and verified times and checkpoints and all your you know your bibs stamped enough times and all that kind of stuff. But. Um, you know, fitness has been the catalyst uh, and the tan. See, in, in early sobriety, I didn't give a shit about sobriety. Like, I'll be the first one to tell you that. Like, I just wanted my shit back. Um, and it's very, very difficult in early. And this is why I believe fitness works. For somebody like me that needs to feel and touch and see and doesn't believe, fitness gave me that belief. Fitness gave me tangible evidence that if I worked hard enough at something, it could get better. I could get better at it, right? So, you know, my first 5K took me, I think, 51 minutes, like sober 5K. Um, you know, it, on this last time, like I was in pretty bad shape. You know, I was heavier than I am now. My blood pressure was high. Like there's a lot of shit going wrong. Um, and it was like a 51 minute 5K, but it provided me with like clear thought and these moments of clarity that were priceless. And like, I could slow my brain down enough that maybe I could see what I was supposed to do versus what I wanted to do, which was very difficult for me. Um, now, fast forward a year later, that same 5K, I went back and, and, and I won the age category. And these are not all my medals. These are the medals that mean something to me. So like, I can look back and see LVRR, Leah Valley Roadrunners. It's now, I think, called the St. Luke's 5K Series. Summer Series 5K. And that's- No, it's still- it's still called that exact thing. I'm, I'm running it right now. Is it it's right? So 630. So a year later, I'm running 630 splits on that course, which is hilly. Yeah, um, the one over at the parkway, right? Yep, 
Yeah, I just uh, I just actually set a, a 5K PR on that about three weeks ago. Yeah, so it's like, you know, you look at it and it was like, oh, shit, like I'm a year sober, but I'm also a podium athlete now. Like maybe if I keep going, I could do some shit. And you'll notice that just like sobriety, like my coins got different, right? They went from 5Ks to 10Ks, to half marathons, to full marathons, to obstacle course races to ultra full marathons, to ultra marathons, to races that are supposed to be relay races that I did myself as one person and, and beat relay teams, um, to 100 mile races. These are not things like I joke and always say, you can fake the funk on just about everything up to the 50 mile distance. Like you could put together hypothetically a six hour marathon finish time. And it would be respectable without a ton of training if you're somebody that's in relatively good shape. Once you step into that ultra community, you ain't faking the funk. Like you ain't showing up and doing a 50 miler just cause you want to. Um, but just like I didn't wake up with time sober, I didn't wake up running hundred mile races. And you're I running and you're running relay races by yourself too. That's David Goggins type shit right there. Yep, so 50K, that's uh, 30 something miles, and that's a relay that goes down the Schuylkill Valley Trail. Um, and normally, each person gets a medal. Um, I ended up doing the whole thing myself um, a couple years back. And put so up they gave you four medals? Um, no, I didn't get the fourth, but it's one of my favorites just because it's so unique. Um, and then, like, last year was really cool. Probably one of my favorite running memories was actually when I raised uh, that couple grand for the Walk for Recovery, which – I'm going to plug it here without Chris's approval uh, when we get done. Um, you might not be able to see it, but the top of it says the only way to uh, define your limits is to go beyond them. So, and when you get into the, the ultra world, it's all about buckles. You know what I mean? So like you'll see up here, it transitioned from, from metals into, into buckles. I don't know if my camera's going high enough or not. It um, hasn't moved. No. I'm a, I'm a, oh, there we, there go. we go. So you see it goes into buckles. So this is like the buckle for Keys 100. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of cool stuff. But it, it reminds me, right, like it's been a journey from 5Ks to 10Ks, my PR in the marathon in New York City. Um, you know, I, I, I escaped Alcatraz, right? Like I should have been fucking locked up on it. I escaped <laughs> it. I swam off Alcatraz. I ran through San Francisco. For I our listeners, he doesn't Hill. mean he didn't he didn't escape from the inside. That's a race for right? our listeners. Yeah, Don't go calling the cops right? on him. So. Again, it's, it's, you know, so many times I see uh, guys that come into early sobriety and they need that, they need, they need to see that shit is getting better. Like, I get that that's not what sobriety is all about, but maybe if we were talking more about how shit got better and we were talking less about problems, we'd have higher recovery rates. Like, when somebody walks in my office, I'm not telling them the stories I just told you. I'm telling them the stories of this. Yeah, exactly. right? I'm telling them how I woke up one day and couldn't do a 5k and now I'm able to run hundred miles. Um, and I think that that sticks, right? That's, that's, that's something it's hard to argue with. Um, you know, and, I also want to point out for our listeners that he has a really cool sign on his desk here that says my sneakers have more miles than your car. <laughs> I like that. One my wife got me. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's cool to be able to share those things and share the experiences. And now seeing some of my clients go out and catch the bug and go from, um, you know, I consider her like my sister right now, Emily, 
Um, I'm not going to divulge too much of her story, but she had gastric bypass. She's down over 200 pounds. And we go in July to Ohio for Burning River, and she'll run her first 50 miler. And we've got our eyes on Pine Creek 100 in September. And there are not a lot of people out there, number one, that can train somebody with gastric bypass effectively or can, can stomach the intestinal fortitude it takes to not be able to nutritionally absorb nutrients and figure out a way around that and run 100 miles. And I don't know you're doing that. finish it. Um, you know, and so it's, it's trial and error, the same way sobriety is, right? When this are you going part, to Ohio to do that? Uh, when do we go? July 24th. Nice. That's awesome. It, it sounds like Ohio is going to be a, a really cool place. I'm actually going to be, um, I'm actually going to Ohio on Saturday night into Sunday. I'll be there till Tuesday because knock on wood one day at a time. Monday is my third sober birthday. So I'm going out to on Sunday, going out to the NFL hall of fame. And then on Monday, I'm actually running a 5k in Ohio and then going to go over to a uh, Dr. Bob's house in Akron um, for, for my third sober birthday and just kind of like soak up all of that, like original, original yeah. sober AA stuff and kind of embrace that. So um, well, I'm, I'm a big reader. So you, when you get into some of the old history and Dr. Bob and the good old timers and that kind of stuff, those are all the books that got, you know, jammed down my throat early on and really laid a foundation for me. Um, to be able to have, you know, something to fall back on along with, you know, the accomplishments that I had, you know, and, and having continued to try to amass, you know, through my running and, and my fitness career. And, and again, it's, it's wonderful. The beauty of it is, is the giving back, right? Like it's cool that I can do it, but to see the inspiration start to happen in people that are around you and see them challenging their limits and going, you know what? I never thought I could do that, but TK did it. So Maybe I can do it. You know, that's the beauty of, I can tell you me. too, your athletes speak volumes of you. Like when I was down at the, uh, the walk for recovery before you got there. Um, I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce her name. Is it Petra Petria? Patia. Okay. Uh, she, man, she just like, just glowing, just talking about you. And when we were saying like, get you down to, uh, to share your story, just like glowing and talking about how, how being a part of that gym has like changed her life on her weight loss journey and getting healthier. And oh, she's like a different person, man. And it's just, man, her just and everybody down there. I forget the other girls' names too, but man, they were just glowing, just just speaking about you and just like the energy that you give off and and the vibe. It's like it's tough to find a label for gym members because we're all family here. Like we're a small club. There's like 120 of us. You know, currently the goal is to get to 200. Um, which has been like my goal from day one of opening this place because it's a place where I can, you know, have, uh, you know, my career, my passion and my program all in one thing. You know what I mean? Where like financially it's supportive enough. It, it's something where I invest a ton of time into this place and want to be able to start to like my next steps are, or maybe bottle on some of the stuff into a book or doing a speaking tour or, or something like that. Like I'm not done by any means. Like, I believe there's three kinds of people on this planet, quitters, campers, and climbers. Quitters hit a little bit of adversity and shit gets tough. This is the exact opposite mentality of an addict because an addict shit gets tough and they just keep grinding. They just keep on finding ways to get fucked up. They're all climbers, right? They're just climbing the wrong way. Um, so quitters are the people that they hit adversity. You meet them. They, I don't want to talk bad about them, but like they're not, they're not going anywhere in life. Like they're going to continue to give you bullshit excuses to why they can't accomplish anything, no matter what's thrown in front of them. 
campers, there's nothing wrong with being a camper, but they, they in like career aspect, they hit 50, 60,000 K a year. You know, they, they, they get a, a wife and the kids and they go on summer vacation and that's their life. They're comfortable with it. It's never going to change. It, 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 they're not going to step outside of that comfort zone. Um, and again, nothing wrong with you if you're a camper. And then there's climbers. We have no flippant idea where the top is. Just don't. I can't tell you when I stop. I can't tell you. I can tell you if I fall down six rungs, my ass is going to climb up 12. And the difference in, in my life is that at one point in time, I was climbing alone. Now I'm reaching out going, how many damn people can I drag up this ladder with me and show them, you know, show them up to the top? So, I mean, if you listen to my answering machine, literally the last thing I say on every one of my answering machine, whether it's a business answering machine, a personal answering machine, is remember having a positive attitude is definitely the key to life. Stay positive and I'll see you somewhere at the top. Because I don't know where that is and I don't know what, you, you know, what that is. But, you it. know, look at your life and, and say, which one do I want to be and which one am I? Because in seasons of life, you can flow through any of the three. You know, you can decide to be a climber any day that you want, and it will change your entire life. It will change the perspective of how you function. Because if if when I set a goal of running the, I don't even know what the hell my Marine Corps Marathon, which wasn't even a goal, I got thrown into it. Um, and I stopped there, half of this wouldn't be here. Like, that's the end point. But there was never a stop point. There, was, there still isn't a stop point, right? Like, um so I'm gonna, I'm gonna start to, to to try to wrap things up. I know you got stuff you got to do. Oh, you're fine. Um, I, I I already I already pushed that back because I didn't want to cut a minute short on what we got going on here. Like this so is much stuff. Cool. So it's like last year we did our first self-planned, self-supported hundred-mile race, and in our later race, this is how we we raised the money for the run for recovery, and I ran from um, the DNL hundred miles. So I started up way up north towards Wilkes-Barre, and I ran all the way through Easton into. Um, I think it's like Riverview Park or something like that. I kept having the name confused, but I ran it sub 24. I ran it in 23 hours. And then I met up with the wife of a veteran that had unfortunately lost his battle with PTSD and suicide. Um, there were some addiction issues involved there. Uh, and uh, I did the, I, I waited 30 minutes for her to show up because I was ahead of schedule. And uh, I ran a 5k with her and um, we're going to, again, the emotions start flowing. We're going to do it again, but this time we're going to do the whole thing. We're going to go 167 miles. Now, this is all pending that we can logistically put it together. However, I, I feel that we will. The recovery walk next year, I'm going to start 48 hours ahead of time, and we're going to do the run for recovery, which is going to be me demonstrating how long the battle with this thing is, um, and I'm going to run the whole DNL. It's 167 miles. We're going to set a 48-hour cutoff. Um, and then when I finish in Trenton, we're going to have a vehicle on standby. And then I'm going to uh, roll up to the recovery walk wherever they have that at um, just to be a part of the festivities and everything. And so we're going to try to loop a, a fundraiser around that. And again, what is after that? The next year, we're going to aim for Tahoe 200, which is a 200-mile circumnavigation of Tahoe. And then the long-term, long-term goal is a uh, UTMB finish off the trail to Mont Blanc, which is a 100-mile uh, race that circumnavigates Mont Blanc starting in Chamonix, France, through Switzerland, and, and then back around through Italy into Chamonix, France. Um, so talk about climbing. We still, like, all this doesn't mean anything 
because we still have further to go. And that's where that one day at a time comes in is that don't ever mistake the fact that the actions of your past are gonna pay the bills of the present or the future. Like I just had my ass handed to me by Keys 100. Like, and it wasn't even physical, it was mental. I made a decision, I opened my eye, I opened my brain up to the idea that I could let the pain stop by bowing out. And I did it on a seven mile bridge, bad place to do it, cause you're stuck. And I did it cause I was mentally having a panic attack of being back on bridges in Iraq. Um, no excuses, like I will own that shit. I'm okay with that DNF and I'm not okay with a lot of DNFs. I'm okay with that one. Cause I know like I've gone back through it. Psychologically, I was not in a spot to finish the race. However, inches add up to miles. Cause if I made that the same decision four miles later across seven mile bridge. We'd be talking about another buckle up there, not a DNF. Like physically I had an in there. I went out and hung out in Key West for the next three days. It was a blast. And that's why I'm not that upset about it is I went down with my best friends in the world. Um, Lisa, my team doc, another one who's like my sister, Emily was there pacing me. Who's getting ready to do her first 50. A few months earlier, she did her first 50 K and I finished the skydive 100, which is the fastest first mile in any race. Cause you skydive to the start and then run hundred miles. It's 14 laps of seven and a half miles around a sugar cane field in Okeechobee, Florida. It's God awful but it's wonderful at the same time. <laughs> um, so, you know, this is the weird, crazy stuff that we do, but it's like, it, it's so pertainable and it's so recovery related when I think about how like, I don't run hundred mile races. I run one mile a hundred times because as soon as you mentally, as soon as on that bridge, I mentally thought about the 46 miles left after running back to back marathons, I'm done. Had I just thought about getting across that bridge, guys, totally different story and your recovery will be the exact same way right sure. like if you focus on running that 100 miles which you are in an ultra marathon like you have a lifetime battle to go this is why running 167 miles down the dnl doesn't scare me now speaking of that 167 down the dnl are you are you taking people like if someone wants to do it with you is that allowed or are you just make are you doing this alone or it's going to depend a lot on permitting so like a limited number of people, if they wanted to like pace me along the way, like I will definitely have people. I mean, what if me somebody at... wanted to do it from beginning to end with you? I think it's possible, man. Um, you know, I don't plan on permitting it, meaning like I don't plan on like reaching out to the powers that be and saying, can I run on the DNL trail at night, even though it's not allowed? I'm just going to do it. So if somebody wants to take that same risk, like. I'm not going to tell them no. Next question I have for you. So when uh, when we first met, just a few days after we met, and um, I, I mentioned like uh, Chris tagged you or myself in a comment and however it went, blah, blah, blah. And that are pretty much saying like, you know, Thomas just did this. And I said, oh, shit, I wish I would have known you a little bit sooner. I would have definitely liked to participate in this some way. And you responded with. Um, well, do you want to run the entire DNL for recovery? Is this kind of what you were talking about? Were you like brainstorming, thinking ahead? So it, like I mentioned this to Chris yesterday and he was like, oh my God, I love it. Let's try to plan it. Okay. Um, so that's the stages that it's in right now. However, running the whole DNL has been on my brain since I lived in New Hope because like that's clearly because like I said, you just said it, you just said it to me before. And I said, I, I said, I, it's totally something I'm interested in. I just want to talk to my run coach because I have a specific goal um, for trying to qualify for Boston. But if I can, if I can do that together, like if I can kind of train for 167 miles plus still train for Boston at the same time, cause I have a phenomenal run coach and she's also an ultra runner. 
and has a 200 mile race under her belt as well. So if I can talk to her and kind of work that out to do both, um, I, I think what I'm doing is kind of like saying that I might be interested in trying to, trying yeah, to do man, that I with mean, you. Have you now also, have you qualified for, have you qualified for and ran Boston yet? I have not run Boston. I qualified for Boston before I had any interest in doing it. And I was still young and fast. I think you're so it will be a, it will definitely be a, I got like one more year until I get in the fat old guy categories. And once my qualifying time can drop down a little bit more, then I might be back to Boston qualifying. What could you run a marathon right now? If you, if you trained and tried. If I trained sub three. That's, I mean, you know, that's Boston for you right now, right? I think I got to run a 227. Listen, listen, I'm no, whoa, whoa, bro. You got to run a 227 if you want to go to the Olympics. <laughs> listen, listen, let me tell you, I'm, I'm obsessed with Boston qualifying. I can, I can tell you the numbers right now. I'm in the so toughest I'm 39. I'm, I am in the toughest category right now. And I need a sub three and I'm in the toughest cool. category. I've done it once man in New York and it's a tough course. So let me just tell you, bro, for, for 39, for, for 39, you actually need like a 305, maybe even 310. Hold on, I'm telling you right now. Uh, yeah, you need you need a 305, bro. You you can do it. So which means if you can run a sub three, you can essentially like you would have way enough buffer. Yeah, I mean I could if I focused on speed training. Like the thing is, is like for somebody like me. So like last year we did 600 mile races. That means we did a hundred mile race every two months. It's not recommended at all for anyone. Um, but we ended up pulling it off. So, um, like my LSD base, my long, slow distance base, it never goes away. Right. Like I'm constantly at that level because when you're doing hundred miles, two months apart, really what you're doing is recovering and maintaining your fitness for a month. And then you're doing a three week cycle with a one week taper and you're going right back in. So just something, so, to, something to think about for you. Um, the race that I'm specifically going to try and qualify for Boston is in March. It's in early March. And not only, not only is it in early March, it's a flat course. It's here in Pennsylvania and the icing, on the, it's called the two rivers marathon. And the icing on the cake is it's directed and organized by, um, by someone who is actually in recovery himself. I just interviewed him. So the race. Right there? This one right here is Two Rivers Run Festival. That I've done like eight times. <laughs> I didn't even know it's been around that long. I thought it's only been around for like four or five years. Uh, that one's in 2018. So that was the. So I did back to back marathons. I did marathon on the first day, marathon on the second day. So yeah, go, go. Think, think about it. In March, you can qualify for Boston, and I think it would be super cool because it's the race director is also I, I, in recovery. I got a, I got one better for you. I would agree to do such race if we could get a hold of the powers that be, and I don't know if you know who David Clark is. If you don't, look him up and start reading his books. I just put his book in my wish list in audio and audible just so last night. David Clark unfortunately passed away to a mountain bike accident. Um, I want to say last year, I believe. Um, but he did quad Boston. So he ran the Boston marathon four times back to back with the last running being timed perfectly to start with the Boston marathon runners. So I will go out and run Boston. If we can figure out a way to, in honor of David Clark, redo quad Boston. 
Okay, so now that's epic. <laughs> so, so essentially, a hundred and a hundred and twenty, uh, hundred was it? just the Boston course four times in a row. Yeah, so a hundred. It's a hundred and uh, four point eight. Yeah. Right. One hundred four point eight. I think. Now, how do you, how? And I'm I'm not against it, but how do do are are we able to do that? Because that course is going to be set up. Do they let us run that course and then? Uh, I would have to look into logistics. I would have to look into who controls that. I mean, David did it, right? So it's like it has to be possible because it was a sanctioned event for him. I like it. I like it. So I got to figure, like, so I, I don't have any idea, but like, I don't know if you know who Charlie Engel is. He I just interviewed, I, across the I just interviewed him as well. You, you got to, yeah, you got to, you should, uh, when you get a chance, I know you're super busy, but when you're on some of these long runs, um, try and check out some of these podcasts because I just interviewed Charlie Engel as well. And, uh, awesome, man. He One just sent me autographed copies like, of his book. Cool guys in the world, man. Like that guy didn't know me from David and like picked me up in North Carolina and like took me shopping for ultra food at Cape Fear uh, to run Badwater Cape Fear. Like when I knew nothing about nothing. I'm going to have to tell um, him I'm interviewing you. But he is, he is just uh, uh, amazing. That's a guy that would know how to put some shit like that together. You know what I mean? Like it, because just like the connections of like, you know, it, it being tied in. And I think he's doing a lot of like trail. He does a lot of planning for trail race Spartan now, I think too. So, you know, if Joe Decina, who's in Joe Decina, if you are listening to this and you, the master of all Spartan races live in Boston, can hook us up with a quad Boston, dude, we are in, and I will do obstacles along the way. If you put them there for me and wear a freaking Spartan shirt. <laughs> I love it. I love dude, it. I mean, call out Joe Decina. Quad Boston Spartan in honor of David Clark in 2022. How do we make it happen? Let's go. I fucking love it. Well, I think it would technically be 2023 because we would have to qualify in 2022. All right. But well, yeah, 2023. let's let's put it on. We're, we're holding a lot of accountability. I fucking love this, bro. I, I love you for this, too. This is super awesome. Um, and I'm going to other side of possible, man. Google my name or Google Ryan Polk. The other side of possible. He made the film. It's a 16-minute uh, story of, of what happened in Transpacus Ultra and how I came out with the win. Um, you know, just talk about miraculous, man. I will never forget sitting down with Gabe the night before going, dude, there's just no way. Like, there's no – like, we went out there with intent to win, and when I saw who I was up against, it was like, it ain't happening, dude. Like, I can't do this. You heard and, the man. He said, Google me, bitch. <laughs> Sure enough, it was there. Don't worry, there's plenty, plenty of uh, of of uh, mug shots too. So the, the good is mixed in with the bad. Some cool military shit that I did. Um, but you'll have a lot of stuff pop up with the running and the ultra running. And again, We're have the mug shots on the down. Like we had no idea we went out there, won the race. Ryan uh, made this little short documentary. Next thing we know, it's like it's it's online in Ultra Runner magazine, and we're like, how the, how the fuck did that happen? Like. We aren't even supposed to finish. Yeah, this is, and we're going to have the mug shots. Uh, I always do an Instagram blast for all of these podcast episodes. And we try and go like from who you were to who you are now. So I'm going to have to get some of those copies of those mugshot photos for you for the Instagram blast. We'll send them on over. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I got the mugshot. I do know. And it's actually in the documentary. So if you just screenshot that shit, you'll have it. And I probably can get arrested for it. So um, is my inmate ID from Northampton County Prison. Oh, man. So it's actually featured um, in, in the first five minutes. It talks about 
how it's always darkest right before the dawn and that I was at my lowest point until I found the running and the ultra running and the fitness communities that I'm involved now. And that was the lights turning on. And it flashes from that shot into a shot. And I think the video closes with, you know, me winning and, and just saying, man, this is, this is really what the other side of possible feels like. And, um, you know, I'll close with this. This has been my mentality. And I actually got this mentality while I was training in Memphis, Tennessee for a different race that is very similar called the Grand to Grand Ultra. So Grand to Grand is probably my, it is on National Geographic's top 10 toughest foot races. Um, I finished 30 at, 30th, I think, out of 300 with, I think, like a 52-hour finish time. 173 miles self-supported. The only thing you can resupply on is water. Um, and I trained for that race, which takes place at 8,000 feet above sea level. Um, so you're right above, you know, you, enough altitude where it can affect you. And, you, you know, you venture into 9,000, 10,000 feet. Um, you know, and I trained for that race below sea level in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, so we think about that for a minute. And uh, I was on a double long run. The heart of ultra training is, is double long runs. So when marathon runners get off on a 20-miler on a Saturday, we do a 30-miler on Saturday and then go out and bang out 15 on Sunday. Um, and then take Monday off and get back into speed training on Tuesday. So I was in the second half of back-to-back -back long runs in a place called Shelby Park. And this is in nasty Memphis, Tennessee heat in like July. And I was on a sales contract uh, teaching door-to-door -door sales reps how to get into houses and, and sell alarm systems for a big-name alarm company out in Utah. Um, so I'm there and I'm training every day and I'm going hard in the paint. And it dawned on me for a second that I was going against, like, when you look at the top 100 in that race, you're going against, like, the top 100 in the world. Like, just to be there and show up on the start line is a pretty damn big deal, considering, like, the nationality quotes, like, you're not, like, there's not more than 50 Americans there, ever. There's, there's not more than 1,000 people that have ever run the race, period, ever. So this thought came into my head, like, who the hell do you think you are? Like, you're going to show up on the start line. Some dude, like, that had a drug problem who's training in Memphis, Tennessee. Let me explain that some of the guys I saw were doing their elevation training on Kilimanjaro. I'm in Memphis with an elevation mask on, running in parking garages. Um, and this concept, this thought came to me, you're not good enough. Like, you... Do not have what it takes. You don't deserve to be on that start line. And uh, the next thought that popped in my head changed my life forever, man. And it was, you've done the work. You've maybe worked harder than some of those guys on Kilimanjaro because you're willing to do it with a pack on in a parking garage in Memphis wearing an elevation mask with people looking at you like you're insane because you look like Bane. Um, you know, maybe stop focusing so much on what you can't do and just push yourself past what you believe is possible. And that's where this concept in the documentary ended up being called The Other Side of Possible. And it's been my training concept since is that possible for me was everything leading up to that point. It was dropping out of high school. What if I gave a little bit more? Like I'm a business owner that does some pretty crazy shit and has figured out ways to build AI marketing systems 
by watching YouTube videos. Like God only knows what could happen if I went to university. Um, you know, failed marriages, uh, screw ups in my military career. Like what if all the what ifs, what if I gave a little bit more? What if I took a little bit more effort? What if I applied myself a little bit more? That's what's possible, right? And all of us have enough damn possible to last us a lifetime and then some. But how many times, how many times can you genuinely look at a race or a run and look back and go, this is pure. There is nothing left in me. Win, lose, or draw, I have put 100% of my heart and soul into this. And, and that is when you go beyond what is possible, right? When you break yourself to the point where you cannot take another step and something switches in your head and goes, go back and look in that safe. Go back and think about the nights ripping and running. Go think about when you thought you were ODing, called the fucking hospital, the ambulance took you to the hospital, the Valium came down and you were so skied out, you ripped the fucking lines out of your arms, watched blood spurt everywhere, signed yourself out against medical advice, and then four hours later, we're blowing lines again. That's the kind of shit that took me to places that, that like, that's the insanity, right? Flip that around. Flip the script on that and take that same energy and leave all of it into something positive. And what happens is, you go from jail cell to gym. You have something to offer the world. You've got these accomplishments on the wall. You know, so I'll wrap up there, man. But that day changed my life because I stopped focusing on winning. I stopped focusing on, you know, time. And I focused on how far can I push myself and how pure can the finishes be when you can look back and go, you know what? Like Transpecus is one of those moments. Four minutes, man four minutes difference and I lost but there was nothing left so I didn't care like there was not a millisecond faster there was not another minute left in the tank like I can remember nine miles from the finish of that race I peed and it hurt so bad that I wanted to die because I'm pretty sure I was in kidney failure and I asked myself would I rather die on course and have my kids know that I gave it my all, or would I rather quit and go home a failure? And it's one of the few times in my life, like I couldn't make that decision on the bridge of keys, but I made the decision consciously there that I would rather in that last nine miles, I didn't know it was nine miles because my watch died. So that was part of the anguish. I had no idea how fast I was moving. I had no idea how far I was from the finish. Um, and, and at that point you're hallucinating. Um, so I decided that I would rather go home on my shield, you know, or, or, or with the wind. Uh, and those moments are few and far between for all of our lives, but the more we can make them happen, the more we get to feel a sense of a life that is not, that's not available every day, unless we, we fight, scratch, kick, fight, and work our asses off for it. That's absolutely unbelievable. 
I just love all of the energy that you give off when, when you're telling these stories as well. And, and like the emotion is just, it's, it's passionate because you can tell just how serious and how much you care and how much you love what you're doing. And, and, and just the energy that you provide to others is just, it's, it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, I'm going to, one, one final question that I do have for you here. So I know a lot of listeners when, when they're out there, when they're listening to this podcast, um, I believe that we have a few different types of listeners on this podcast. Um, some are just listening to this for pure entertainment value. They just catch every episode and they just like hearing the stories and, and, you know, they're in a great mental place and they just like hearing this stuff. But then I truly believe that we have um, listeners out there that are struggling. We have some that might be sober right now and they might be counting their days and they might be thinking about picking up a drink or a drug, or they might, it might be a veteran who might be having suicidal thoughts or just someone who just might be having suicidal thoughts in general, which, which we hate to think about, but is a reality. Um, and then I, I believe that we also have people that um, have not yet put down the drink or the drug, or they might be in the middle of their most recent relapse and they want to put it down and they want to be done with the bullshit for good. And, and they, they want to sober up and clean up. So for those people that are listening, the ones that might be thinking about picking up the drink, or, or the drug or the ones that might not have put it down yet. What is uh, a quick word of encouragement or uh, a piece of wisdom, something that you can pass on that you've learned over the last eight years um, that you can kind of tell them for those listeners that might, might keep that drink or drug out of their hands today? Keep going. Don't quit before the miracle happens. It's too cliche for me. But I'll close it out with a story that's from, uh, uh, I think it's Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or Think and Grow Rich or something like that. And that's the story of the guy that was in California and he had a gold mine and, and uh, was dead set he was going to get rich and, and had his eyes on gold. And maybe that's sobriety for you. Maybe it's holding on to it. Maybe it's just one more day of life for you, right? Whatever your gold is, man. And he, he, he mined for years and years and years thinking he was going to get it. And, uh, and he never found gold and, and he ended up selling the plot of land. And this is a true story. Ended up selling all the equipment to pay back all the people he borrowed from. And, and he came out clean, you know, came out without any, uh, you know, big debts or anything like that. But three days after he sold the gold mine, somebody had brought uh, a, a geologist on as they had hit gold early on, but then couldn't figure out where the vein went and dried up. This new guy that bought the land was a little bit smarter in gold mining. And he brought a, you know, he brought his geologist on. And geologist within 72 hours was able to tell them exactly where to mine at to find where the vein picked up at. True story, man. Um, you know, and uh, that ended up being one of the largest gold mines in the entire gold rush. And he was literally feet, feet away from hitting the largest gold mine ever, right? And so I guess I apply that to, like, I don't know everything. I wish I did. The more, the further along I get, the less I know. The more surprised I am by people. Um, and, uh, you know, I got to turn to other people that know more about this than I do um, in all areas of my life, whether it's my marketing company that's helping me with the next task of, you know, reaching out and accessing people from my gym, or it's my sobriety and reaching out to somebody and going, yo, what do you think about this, right? Because my brain's still broken. Like I'm, I'm not fixed by any means and I never will be. And the second that I start to believe that I am, I need to open up the safe. I need to look inside and remember those crazy nights and remember some of those crazy stories that I told you. Um, and then 
close it back up as fast as I can and put the locks back on. Um, and, and that's what I would tell you is keep on mining until you find the gold. I absolutely love it. I love it. Now, when we, uh, when we met on May 1st, um, I signed up and I got the 10 day pass for your gym, but my ankle was starting to act a little wonky again from something I did in the gym. And, um, I was just trying to be careful because running and qualifying for Boston is my main goal. So I wanted to be careful with strength training and, and, um, doing certain things. Um, so I, I was kind of just like staying away from certain things, but now I'm, I'm feeling a lot better and everything feels like it's back to hundred percent again. So when I get back from Ohio, I plan on starting my 10 day pass with you guys and coming out to Phoenix fit. Um, so along, along with that, for our listeners out there, for people that might be in the Valley or might not be too far away and are willing to make the drive, um, or maybe they just want to come see you and drop in for the day and meet this awesome guy that they heard on this podcast, sharing this story for everybody out there. Um, how can they get a hold of you? How can they find your gym? Where are you located? Like this is your opportunity to just plug everything that you have going on and all this awesome stuff. We're super active on social media, uh, both Instagram and Facebook is Phoenix fit with an F F E N I X F I T underscore together. We rise. So again, Phoenix Fit, starting with an F, underscore, together we rise, both of our social media accounts. Um, and then our website, if you want to get a 10-day pass, come check us out, www.phoenixfittogetherwerise.com. So again, www.phoenixfittogetherwerise.com is where you can find us online. And if you're here in the Valley, just want to check us out, 720 Sheridan Drive. We live on the same street Larry Holmes that lives. Isn't that cool? World champion boxer. Um, so uh, 720 Sheridan Drive, Unit 6. We were open from 5 in the morning until 8 o'clock at night, Monday through Thursday. 5 in the morning until 6 o'clock at night on Friday. And 8 to 1 on Saturday and Sunday. 9 a.m. on Saturday mornings. Bananas. I mean, the energy is through the roof. You want to come out, have some bagels, do some burpees, grab a cup of coffee with us afterwards. We'll all be hooking and jabbing. Come check us out. We would love to have you and show you around. Sit down and talk more about this uh, this crazy thing we put together. And really, more than anything, the culture, the camaraderie, the energy, the excitement of being split is just second to none and something that can only really be experienced. Absolutely love it. And I just want to make sure, too, that um that 10-day pass wasn't something that you were just, like, hooking up for that walk for recovery. That's anybody anybody out there who just yep, goes on the website. on our website, constant. It'll say, to whom do we send a 10-day pass? I'm going to email and a, uh, a name, and I'll make sure I get right back to you. Generally, I send out a, a, a video message to you personalized that same day. It is. You get, you'll, get, you'll get to see the handsome mug um, that I've been looking at for the last two hours. Um, you'll get to see him sending you a cool message and welcoming you into the gym, and it's, it's super awesome. And like I said, I can't wait to be there. Um, I'm, I'm super excited. So uh, as we wrap up here, uh, I definitely want to thank you so much for being on the show with us today, Thomas. It was an absolute pleasure chopping it up with you um, and just getting to talk about anything and everything. This was it was truly a blessing. And and I I can't thank you enough for taking the time with us today. Thank you, man. Um, Absolutely. It's been awesome. On behalf of everybody with the Staying Fit ODAC community on the Facebook page, on Instagram, every on behalf of all of our followers, on behalf of everybody on the on the podcast here as well. Um, from everybody at Staying Fit, Odad as a whole, uh, Thomas, we just ask you to continue staying healthy, continue staying fit, and brother, tell us how you're doing it. One day at a time, man. Great Absolutely. Talk, man. Absolutely love it. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Staying Fit, Odad. 
If you yourself identify as someone in recovery, whether it be from alcoholism, substance abuse, anxiety, depression, or any other type of mental health issue, then please join the group on Facebook at Staying Fit O-D-A-A-T, three different words. If you do not identify as someone in recovery, but you like everything we have going on and you want to continue staying in the loop with everything, then please follow us on Instagram at Staying Fit O-D-A-A-T. You can also email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at stayingfitodaat at gmail.com. Until next time, just know you're loved, continue staying healthy, continue staying fit, and please keep doing this one day at a time.